Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on, and the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Good morning, everyone. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for having me along. We've got a great show this morning. First up, we've got Neville Munro. I have long had a grave concern about the Scott Watson trial uh, for the murder of Ben Smart and Olivia Hope. It always struck me as preposterous, the evidence against Scott Watson. I remember talking to a journalist who covered it, a journalist who I respected, and he said, oh, yeah, 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 no, they got the right guy. But he said, you know, the cops never proved it. <laughs> which I thought was the point of a trial. This was a journalist that covered it closely. And so we have Neville Munro to talk all these years on about that case. And then for something earthy, we're going to be talking about soil. We're going to be getting close to the soil and talking about how soil is the lifeblood of everything, of everything that we eat, who we are and what we do, and how soil isn't something just to stand on or sit plants in, that it is own ecology and ecosystem, and how we need to care for it, nurture it, nurture it to be good for ourselves and for the planet. Send me a text, 2057, email me inbox at radiocheck.radio. And again, I'm so pleased you're along and listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. 
RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. There's hardly a, a murder case that happens in New Zealand that there isn't, unless it's clear cut, there's a concern about whether the justice system got it right. And, of course, we know that it's got it wrong in the past on murder. And one that's always troubled me has been the Scott Watson conviction for the murder of Ben and Olivia. And I remember when I was in Parliament being sent material and studying it at some length and meeting with people that had written the books, Keith Hunter and Mike Gallagher, and thinking, no, this is something's not right here. Something smells. And going along to some of the meetings and protests where I met in Christchurch, Neville Munro, who's a campaigner for Scott Watson. And Neville joins us here. Good morning, Neville. Good morning, or afternoon, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me, what started you down this path? Uh, well, it, it's a long story. I'll try to make it short. My my partner, my ex-partner, um, Brenda, who, who I was with for about 10 years, who actually now, I, funnily enough, I flat with her and her current partner. She's a very, very good friend of mine. Um, I w- knew that I was reading up a book on the David Bain case, all the stuff that Joe Karam had done. And she said to me, you should find out about the Scott Watson case. It's really, it's really interesting. And so the lady I was with at the time, I said to her, look, let's try and get some books on Scott Watson, just because I've been told I should. And um, we found that somebody was selling online all the books. Oh, there were six of them, I think. Every book ever written about the Scott Watson case. So I said, well, yes, I'll buy that for, it was only a few dollars. I got all the books. And I, the first one I read was Trial by Trickery. And uh, I, I look at Who the Who wrote Trial one. by Trickery? Trial by Trickery was written by Keith Hunter, the same okay. guy that did Murder on the Blade, yes. yes. And um, I, I thought, Keith Hunter, hang on a minute, That's that, isn't that not the trumpet player from the Auckland Symphonia? Because I used to be a violinist in the orchestra many years ago, and I thought, I wonder if that's the same guy. So I emailed him, and it turned out that it, what Keith Hunter was, the ex-first trumpet in the Auckland Symphonia. I and, did not know that about Keith. Yeah, yeah, we're both. We've got both got a musical background. When the orchestra went full time in '74, I joined as a full time member. Keith then left to take up a career in journalism. Uh, so, so I anyway, I emailed, I emailed him and said, "Look, I didn't realise it was you, Keith. I'm, you know, can we meet sometime? Because he lives in Auckland, like I do. Can we meet and have a coffee?" So we did, and since then we've had many coffees um, and many talk, many long talks about the case. He's been- a lovely. Lovely, lovely man. He is. He, he's a man of absolute integrity, 100% yes. trustworthy, um, somebody I admire. You walk into his house in, in, in 
off Ponsonby Road, I think it is, and he, the whole wall in his office is just full of awards for journalism. The whole wall, wall, cups and plaques and all sorts of things. He's a very, very accomplished man. But um, any time I've, I've rung up and said, look, can we have a coffee we're going to meet? He's always willing to yeah, trot what he's doing, come down and have a talk. We've become very good friends, I think, over the last few years. Um, can you uh, do one thing for me? Neville, can you give him my very, very best regards? I absolutely will, yes. I because I hold him in extremely yeah. high regard. Yeah. And yeah. here he is, a great journalist yeah. who has been besmirched. Yeah. Who is besmirching him, may I ask? Oh, the 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 other media, because he's always been standing up for Scott Watson. No one will listen to him. Well, I know that, uh, well, plenty of us are listening to him, I can tell you that. And, uh, I know. So and, carry uh, on, I interrupted you. No, sorry, Ian Wishart's one of the people that uh, did a bit of besmirching, and uh, I dealt with him in my own way. I won't go any further than that, but uh, Ian Wishart, in my opinion, is a man with no no credibility at all, and okay. I stress my opinion. But uh, another person I was very fortunate to meet through all this is a man named Warwick Jennis, who was a head of the MRG, the Maritime Research Group, who, who uh, yes. produced the MRG report. I don't know if you – I've got a I copy of it. I have read that. I have yes, read that. That's right. I remember there's a comment from you at the bottom of that, which is excellent. Um, I, I've met with Warwick several times. Uh and had all sorts of long conversations. I've had off-the-record conversations with him about uh, things he's found out, which were very, very shocking and very surprising, things that he, that he didn't even put in the report and he's told me confidentially. Um, there, there is a, uh, there's also, I'll, I'll tell you now, there's a, there's a document that's come into our possession. Uh, I can't talk about, because it's so sensitive, I can't talk about it on the radio because you know, certain people's feelings, especially the Hope Smart family's feelings could be hurt by this. It's purported to come from one of the real perpetrators, the people who are actually involved in the abduction and murder of Ben and Olivia. I won't say any more than that. I, I, I will send you a copy of that by the end of the week. Uh, I've also got a lot of details about about the, what's going on at the moment with the parole hearing, etc. We're, we're still compiling that, but I'd like to email that to you also. You'll get that by, by uh, 5 p.m. this Friday, so you can look through it and, and make any comments. But uh, the, 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 two, the two main things that people need to know that are going on at the moment is uh, Scott comes up um, for, for a parole hearing somewhere around the end of this month. We don't have a specific date. This will be his fifth parole hearing. And he's been continually turned down for reasons that, in my opinion, just just don't stack up. Uh, they don't make any sense. They're con they're contra very contradictory. One minute they're saying he's a model prisoner, he gets on well with people, and has, has worked well in the prison, and then they turn around and say he's a high risk to society and can't be let out. That doesn't make sense. But uh, I'll, I'll, we can talk more about that later. Uh, the other, the other thing that's uh, very concerned that we're all concerned about is that he's due for for his final appeal to be heard by the court of appeal in May of next year. Um, we've got serious um, serious uh, concerns about that. Uh, not the least of which were the remarks by, made by uh, Justice Sir Graham Pankhurst regarding that hearing that. Uh, 
even though the hair evidence has now been discredited. And remember, the hair evidence was what they, what Christy McDonald said, that the whole case was built basically on the hair evidence. It was the, big, the strongest plank they had against Scott Watson, and that's now been completely discredited by the Doyle report. But then Pankhurst turns around when referring the case on to the, onto the Court of Appeal. He, he, he says to them, but in spite of the fact that the hair evidence basically no longer exists, um, there's still a very strong case against Scott Watson, which uh, to me is absolutely, I'd like to know, and we're going okay, to ask. Yeah, well, you're right up with the case. Yeah. For most people, yeah, we can't even remember it. No, no, we can't even remember the shocking murders because it was would, twenty-three years ago or so. Would you like me to run run briefly through what happened? I would love you to run through the through the murder, yeah, and run us through the case and just yep. give us a grand overview, and then we'll get on to where things are at. So, in your yep. own way, tell us the story. Okay, uh, New Year's Eve, nineteen ninety-seven. Uh, a, a young couple, Ben Smart and Olivia Hope, went to a party at Fernow Lodge, which is in the Marlborough Sounds. It's it's um, in uh, in uh, Endeavour Inlet, which is off Queen Charlotte Sound. I don't know if you know the area, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a very popular uh, uh, place for New Year's Eve celebrations in, in that area. A lot of people came to it. There were about Ooh, about 2,000 people there at that party, big party in the pub, and it spilled out into the garden bar, etc. you know. Uh, Scott Watson was there. Scott Watson was a local guy who, who'd um, been in trouble with the law in his youth, but nothing serious, just petty, petty crimes. In his own words, he was a little shit <laughs> growing up and got into trouble. And... Um, but for the last eight years before that, he hadn't committed any serious crimes at all. He hadn't been to jail, hadn't done anything. He, he decided on his own to, to, to put his life of petty offending behind him and go straight, as it were, and live, live a decent life. He just built himself a 26-foot sloop out of steel, which is no mean feat for a young guy. It's a very specialist type of welding that you need to do to, to make a boat like that. And he, he did it very successfully. So he, he went to that party along with all these other people. And uh, after the after the party ended, uh, let's see how I can put this. Uh, after the party ended, Ben and Olivia uh, went back to the uh, to the boat that she'd come on. She, she'd chartered a boat along with her friend and her sister and some friends. They went back to that boat in a water taxi with, with a um, guy named Guy Wallace. Uh, when they got back to the boat, uh, which I oh, name slips my mind, but it's not important. They went back to the boat that they came on. A whole lot of gate crashes had got on there, and there was no left, nowhere left for them to sleep. So Olivia said, "To hell with this! I can't sleep here. Let's get back in the water taxi and see if the water taxi driver can help us." Because Guy Wallace also worked at Fernow Lodge as a barman, and and that, she said to to Guy Wallace, look, is there any rooms left at Fernow Lodge for us to stay? And and Guy said, no, well, it's New Year's Eve, we're all full up. Um, and then there was another guy in the in the in the water taxi as well. It was commonly become known as the mystery man, a, a scruffy guy with long hair who hadn't shaved for a few days and smelt of bourbon. They said he'd been drinking bourbon at the bar all night. 
And he, he piped up and said to Ben and Olivia, well, there's plenty of room on my boat. You can come and stay with me. And um, so Guy Wallace um, eventually, and there, were another, there was another young couple on that boat as well, uh, Hayden Morrissey and his girlfriend, I think she was Sarah Dyer. So they are witnesses to all this. Uh, they went back to the, to the boat that the, the, the mystery man was on, which is what it's commonly become known as the mystery catch. It was a large wooden uh, two-masted catch, about 40 feet long, very distinctive-looking boat with with a big blue stripe along it and about six or seven portholes with huge brass surrounds, very distinctive-looking boat. In fact, it was a one-off design. Nobody else has ever seen any boat that looked like that anywhere. I mean, I've been boating 40 years and I've never seen anything anywhere that looked anything like it so it was very easy to identify right and and that guy wallace felt uneasy about this scruffy long-haired man because he was a bit a bit sleazy and he, he got a bad feeling and he said to ben and olivia before he dropped them off he said are you sure you're okay with this are you sure you want to get on this boat with this guy and and they replied oh yes yeah, gonna be fine happy new year see you later and that's the last anybody well, it's not the last anybody's ever seen it. It was the last guy Wallace ever saw of them. Um, How old were they, Ben and Olivia? Ben Smart was 23, I believe. Uh, Olivia was 17. They had, oh had they had had a relationship prior. Uh, at that time, they weren't they weren't in a relationship, but they they met up and sort of got together again at the party. Okay. And, and so, yeah, they got on the boat. Then. Um, Nobody heard from them again, and and they didn't they didn't go back they didn't go back to their parents' place either of them after the party. And, and the, by the second of January, the parents were starting to worry. They thought, "Well, where are our kids? Why haven't they come home from the party?" And they waited. Uh, I think it was about three o'clock in the afternoon on the third of January. They they they'd had enough. The parents they thought there's something wrong. What's what's happened to our kids? So they phoned the local police and uh, reported them missing. Now, um, to, to, to just cut a long story short, uh, the police, in their wisdom, decided to discount the mystery catch altogether and, and tell the public that it didn't exist. They discounted Guy Wallace's evidence and the evidence of, of, of Sarah Dyer and Hayden Morrissey about letting, they described what it was like, letting the people off of this sketch. They actually grabbed hold of it and hung on to it while, the, while Ben and Olivia climbed on board and they could see the big brass portholes and how big the boat was. And now Scott, the, the police just discounted all that and they, then they came up with this idea that it wasn't it wasn't the mystery catch that they went to at all. It was Scott Watson's boat. Now, Scott Scott's boat was, um, they, they elected Scott as a suspect uh, after looking at all the all the local people, they must have gone to the local police and said, "Well, look, who who's who's who have you got on your books? That's a, a bit shady." And they they found this guy called Scott Watson who'd been in trouble with the law a few years ago. He was alone on his boat, so to me, he was an easy target. Well, we'll we'll point out our investigation towards him. But the thing the thing that they got wrong is that in saying that he was alone on his boat, he actually wasn't. He was in a what they call a raft up, tied up with two other boats, and there were a total of eleven other people in that raft up. And now, now you, um, when you, when you realise that when you look at the evidence, uh, when he got that the police say that when he got back to his to his boat, when the, the they say the water taxi driver actually dropped 
the, the, the kids off to Scott Watson's boat, which is a way smaller, way smaller than the mystery catch, and that they got on board with, with, with him. And then the next thing, he murdered them on his boat while in a raft up with these other people. And, of course, the reason that's impossible is, uh, you know, to, to, to attack two healthy young people in, in a situation like that where when boats are tied together, if, if, if there's some kind of violent act going on, the boat will rock, and every other boat that's tied up to it will rock violently as well. And you'll hear the sounds of people, you know, crashing around and yelling out, what, whatever happens when, when you're trying to rape someone and murder two people. It's, it's, it's not going to be a quiet affair. And yet the people on these, uh, the, in court, the people that were on these two other boats testified that they heard no sound whatsoever after Scott got back to his boat. If Scott came over already, they, already Neville. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's extraordinary. It is. and like it Guy is. Wallace, you can't yeah. mistake those two boats. Absolutely not. There's you look at a picture of one side and uh, one alongside the other. Scott Watson's boat is actually about one third by volume the size of the mystery catch. It and, looks like a toy. And isn't it one you climb up to, and the other one you'd climb down to? Absolutely. You get about a three-foot climb up to get on the mystery catch, whereas to get out of a Nyad water taxi onto Scott's boat, you would be stepping straight across. But um, all the all these people testified that they heard nothing, they felt nothing. And when Scott got back to his boat, first of all, he was drunk, he was very drunk, and he, he wandered over to the other boats and tried to get them out of bed to party with them, and they, they basically told him to F off, we're going to sleep, go away, Scott. So then he went to the other boat on the raft up, which was called the Bianca. Two people on board there also told him to bugger off. We're, you know, we're trying to go to sleep. We don't want to get up and party. So according to Scott, he, he, he gave up that idea, went back to his boat, cooked himself up a feed and went to sleep. And But, but, but the, the, the Crown's contention was that he'd, he'd gone through the, this violent act that happened on his boat and then none of these people heard a thing or felt any movement, which is impossible, really. And there's another piece of evidence I want to want you all to consider that, that's very, very important because the Crown, Scott Watson was convicted on the grounds, on the basis that he was the mystery man, that the long-haired, scruffy guy, um, you know, with him drinking bourbon all night was actually Scott Watson, and he was the one that was on the water taxi, and he was the one that invited the kids back to his boat. Now, there's, there's proof absolute that he wasn't the mystery man, and it's what we call the timing evidence. Uh, the bar staff, multiple people who worked in the bar, testified that the mystery man was at the bar drinking bourbon from at least 8 o'clock onwards on New Year's Eve. Remember that time, 8 o'clock. And then... Scott Watson didn't come ashore with all the people from the Mina Cornelia, which is the boat he was rafted up next to. There was seven people on that boat. So Scott and those other seven people all came to, to shore in a water taxi together no earlier than 9.30. So there's a one-and-a-half-hour gap. For, for one-and-a-half hours, Scott was still on the Mina Cornelia drinking and having a party with seven witnesses while the mystery man was sitting at the bar drinking bourbon. They could not have been the same person. Yet that piece of evidence seems to have been overlooked in court that the, the defence team didn't pick up on it. As I say, it's proof absolute. You forget about all the arguments about blink photographs and misleading the witnesses, which they did. 
But, I mean, forget about all that. The timing evidence proves absolutely that the two men could not have been one and the same. But, and this is, this is, this is a problem for us, um, in the Court of Appeal, they've only allowed two points of law to be discussed. Their timing evidence isn't one of them, so they're not even going to be able to talk about that. And there's a, there's a piece of clear evidence which would exonerate Scott Watson immediately, send him home, set free and exonerated, that they're not allowed to talk about it. And this is the this is the closed minded, strange way in which our legal system works. You know, they're confined only to talking about two points of law in the Court of Appeal. One of them, I believe, is, is to do with the efficacy of the hair evidence, that, that which has basically already been destroyed by the Doyle report. And the, and the other one is the, the um, sorry, the, what's the, what's the second point? that uh, It's the, the identification process, I, I beg your pardon, where, again, we're, where they're talking about the the blink photograph and well in the you know the, the, the methods used by the police to identify Scott as the mystery man and they they used what was what was now referred referred to as a trick photograph. Everybody said that the mystery man uh, had sort of hooded eyes. They looked like they were half shut. So of all the all the montage photographs they took of Scott Watson, they finally came up with one where they caught him halfway through a blink and it, his eyes were half shut. And so they showed that photograph to the witnesses and they said, well, look, does this guy look like the mystery man? And they said, yes, uh, the eyes are similar, but the hair's all wrong. This guy had shoulder length hair. And then the police turned around and said to the witnesses, oh, that doesn't matter because he's cut his hair. So what the police were contending was that Scott Watson actually turned up to the, to the party with shoulder length hair, went back and murdered Ben and Olivia, and then cut his hair the next day to mislead the police. And what's wrong with that claim is that uh, there was a photograph taken of Scott Watson on New Year's Eve in a supermarket showing quite clearly that he had short back and sides here, and it was before he went to the party. So how on earth could he – at least he was wearing a wig. How did he turn up at the party with long hair? How? Scott, Scott Watson has never had long hair. <laughs> what was the evidence that convicted him? To be honest with you, Rodney, uh, when you, I'd, I'd say that on appeal, that what they should have appealed on was the fact that the, he, he, he could not, he should not have been found guilty on the basis of evidence presented. Because the, 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 when you look at all the evidence in its entirety, it just doesn't stack up. I, I would say to you this: the reason he was convicted, and, and Chris Watson, his father, and the Watson family will agree with me on this. It was because of the the concerted effort, the defamation of Scott Watson in the press prior to prior to prior to his uh, arrest, um, in, in defiance of the subjudicate law, which says you can't do that before somebody goes to trial. They they got around it by saying there were no suspects. Publicly, they, they kept saying there were no suspects, but then they kept talking about the the sloop at the centre of the inquiry, which pointed straight to Scott Watson, and they printed, allowed the press to print all sorts of things in the paper about how he was dangerous and his friends were frightened of him. He, he had, a, had an explosive temper, and, you know, by the by the time he got to court, he, he was, he'd been demonised so much in the press, and, and this was all fed by the police deliberately, 
he'd been demonized so much that I think that the, the jury went into court thinking, well, this guy's so bad that even that even if he uh, it, it just overrode any evidence, uh, he's so bad that even if he didn't commit this crime, we should lock him up anyway because he's probably going to kill somebody else sooner or later. I mean, that's not the right reason to find somebody guilty, obviously. But, um, you know, they ignored, they, for example, one thing, you know, if they ignored the, the evidence that the, the Crown claimed that he made a trip from out from dumping bodies out in the middle of uh, Cook Strait, five miles out in Cook Strait to Erie Bay in a little over in a little over half an hour. Uh, Keith Hunter did that same trip in Murder on the Blade. It took him two and a half hours for, for Scott to for Scott to get to make that journey in his boat. In that amount of time, he would have had to be doing twenty five knots in a boat with a maximum hull speed weeded up as it was a maximum hull speed of three and a half knots and seven times its maximum speed absolutely impossible you know when you talk about the lundy case and how long it took him to drive to palmerston north i mean but this is way worse than that there's no way that a yacht can do that speed the only way scott's boat could go that fast would be if it was being towed behind a destroyer and that would tear the hull out of they would tear the, the, the keel out of the boat and rip it to pieces they're just not designed to go that fast yet that 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 evidence was right there in front of the jury the, the judge turned around and said to the jury, well, maybe the timing doesn't matter, so it isn't important anyway, so forget about it. In other words, it doesn't matter if the facts doesn't don't fit, and that's what the judge said to them. Don't forget about the timing, it's not that important. So they they basically they basically found him guilty in spite of, of clear evidence that showed that he couldn't possibly have done the crime. And they found him guilty, I believe, because of, because they hated him. Uh, I, I, I remember um, reading an article that Scott did in the North, South, North and South magazine talking about how when somebody was up on the stand giving, him, giving evidence and a member of the jury shot him this look of hate while this evidence was being given. And this, this is what was going on. It was they the really thing. the police really did a number on it because Absolutely I remember now it's coming back to me from the books that they refused to charge him so they could keep the vitriol and media naming yeah. and photo and having photographs of this guy. So you had concluded he was he was the perpetrator before he was charged. That's absolutely right. He he, he was he was um, guilty until proven guilty, is what it was. He wasn't innocent. It's supposed to be the other way around, of course. And, um, and also, too, back then, my problem was I sort of semi-believed what was in the newspaper. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people did. A lot of people did. <laughs> I don't know. But back then, I sort of believed it, and it affected you. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. It, uh, you I know what? Mean, I had a very famous journalist tell me. Yeah. This is coming back to me now. You, you'll appreciate yeah. this, Neville. Yeah. I think he covered this one, covered the case. And I knew him. He's a young young man, right? Yeah. And I said, what did you make of this case? Because I'd read Keith yeah. Hunter's book and Mike Gallagher's book. And he said, oh, yes, no, he definitely did it. It's just that the police never proved it. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's a very how, uh, how extraordinary a statement is that from a journalist who was covering the case? He did it, yeah. just the police never proved it. Well, I'd say to that guy, you say you did it. Where's your proof? Where is yeah. your evidence? 
They had none. Yeah, that's right. They did, they didn't have any at all. Now I say this to you, following on to that, is appropriate that I say this this piece. Um, the, the, you've heard, you've heard of noble cause corruption, where where um, okay, for example, the, you've got a really bad person who's committed some very serious crimes, but you can't find enough evidence. You don't think you've got enough evidence to to um, to, to put them away, you want to put them away to make to make the public safe because this is a really bad perpetrator. So you break a few rules, that, yes. that you know, you, because you, you genuinely believe that he is guilty. But so you break a few rules. You may plant some evidence. You you may, as in as in Scott Watson's case, coerce a couple of jailhouse snitches to lie on the stand and say that he confessed when he actually no such thing. Uh, you'll do those sorts of things because we've got to, we've got to get this guy off the streets. Now, I would say very clearly that did not happen in Scott Watson's case, and that's what makes their actions so reprehensible, Rodney. They knew, and they always knew from day one that he was innocent. They deliberately set out to convict a man who they knew was innocent, and that is absolutely unacceptable behaviour from, from a Crown law team, from the police, it's not noble cause corruption. It is deliberate corruption. It is. It is. It is. Um, what's the word for it? Um, perverting the course of justice, uh, an offence for which some of those people should have gone to jail. And it's um, here we are. Why did they do? Why? How, how can the police and the court system conspire yeah. in such a way? Do you think? Well, you'd be—I'll be called a conspiracy theorist for saying it, but uh, maybe I'll just come out and say it. I, be, I believe, I believe, I, I'm pretty sure. When you get these documents, I'm going to send you. You will understand, and you'll believe it too. That they—they they knew who the real perpetrators were. They either wanted to protect them, or it was too—it was going to be too hard to to. To go after an entire, because we're talking about an entire gang here, a very big, well-organised gang, which is operating throughout New Zealand, they would have, they would have had maybe 20, 20, um, sus 20 uh, people in the dock <laughs> if they if they'd gone after the real perpetrators. Uh, it was easier to. It was just the same as as Arthur Allen Thomas, exactly the same. In the Thomas case, they knew who the they they knew who the the real murderer was. Len Demler, I can say that, but they, they didn't have the the murder weapon. It was going to be too hard, and they might not they might not get a conviction. So they looked at Arthur Allen Thomas and they said, "Well, we have got his gun. All we need to do is fire a couple of bullets, plant the shells, and slam dunk. We we'll, we will look to the public like and to our superiors like we've done our job. We'll get a pat on the back for a job well done. Doesn't matter that the guy in jail for the rest of his life actually is innocent. That's just a that's just collateral damage, and." I believe, in, and that's why I'm so passionate about this, Rodney, is because they they, they knew that the, who the people were that did it, and 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 in going after Scott Watson, who was basically a scapegoat to cover up for the real perpetrators, they allowed a gang of killers to go free. And I will say this: Rob Pope did exactly the same things two two years later in the Lisa Blakey case. He knew who the people were who who killed Lisa Blakey. He he let them go and convicted a guy who he knew because I know a police woman who worked on that case, and he admitted to her that he knew that Tim Taylor didn't commit the murder. But 
it, it was easier to build a case against him than to go after the the real mm. perpetrators, perpetrators who again were a gang and were all alibying each other. So it was going to be too hard to go after them. So they went after another guy. They went what? after the guy that picked her up in the car. They they will stay on the stay on the Scott Watson yeah. case. Yeah. Um. Now was it? One was a sloop, one was a kitsch. I'm de, I'm not a boaty, so I get the two mixed no. up. Yeah. What was the one that Guy Wallace dropped Ben and Olivia off at? That was called that was a kitsch. It had two masts and it was a large boat. Okay. Yeah, the kitsch the kitsch was seen yeah. subsequent all over New Zealand. Oh, look, <laughs> they stood up in court and told the court that it didn't exist. And that nobody had ever reported seeing it. They told that to the jury. And in fact, no, it was seen all over New Zealand. It was seen. It was seen most importantly by a police officer, a serving police officer in in, in Napier, who actually went on board it and walked around, took notes, went back to his went back to his office and sent in a report to Operation Tam in Wellington. That's Pope and Co. And they turned around and said to this guy, "We don't want your report. Thanks anyway, but we're not interested." And then they turned around and told the public the boat didn't exist. There was also 20 people who reported seeing that catch coming into the Manukau Harbour. I think that was on about the 7th of seventh or 8th of January, something like that, because uh, it, it circumnavigated the whole North Island after it left after it left the Marlborough Sounds. It went all the way and, around. And, and those and the police, as I recall from yeah. the case, thinking back, to what has been uncovered, the yeah. police weren't interested in taking even notes if someone rang in and reported that. Boat. Yeah, that's right. A lot of the times, that, that, a lot of the times they um, they just didn't um, didn't even they just basically hung up on the people and said no, we're not interested, sort of thing. Now, now this leads me to another very important point. Following on, well, this is still part of your question. You're talking about people reporting the catch. There were seven documented sightings of Ben and Olivia between the 2nd and 6th of January by many members of the public, on, and some of them on the actual mystery catch. Now, one very important one was a group of people saw this mystery catch, very distinct-looking boat, one-off design, couldn't confuse it with anything else. They saw it come into the wharf at Mapua in the late afternoon on the 3rd of January. That's a, that's um, two days after the Crown claimed Scott Watson had killed the kids. They saw a couple exactly matching Ben and Olivia's description sitting in the cockpit of that boat with their hands tied behind their back. This group of people elected a spokesperson to, to ring up the police the next day, which they did first thing in the morning. The police didn't respond. Now, th this is a sighting of a couple that's been kidnapped, and there's been pictures of them in the paper, pictures of the boat. Where have, have you seen these kids? Have you seen this boat? Please contact the police. And when these people contacted the police and said, not only have we seen the boat, but we've seen the two kids tied up at the back of it, the police did nothing. They eventually sauntered down there about six days later to have a look. By then, the, the boat had gone. Uh, according to the information I have, by then, Ben and Olivia were also dead. I mean, how on earth can they – they basically, in my mind, the police are accessories to murder because of their failure to respond when they could have. They could have gone and saved those kids that day. They they could have gotten their car and driven over to Mapua quickly and said, "Where's this boat? You know, send a police launch out." 
the kids were still alive. They could have been rescued. Well, and they were they sacrificed how them. Come, how come, Neville, yeah. Yeah. it can be, according to you, yeah. so cut and dried yeah. that there's no evidence against Scott Watson, Yeah, that there are multiple witnesses that saw the boat that supposedly didn't exist. Yeah. All this is evidence that yeah. can be tested. Yeah. How can it be that this hasn't come out? Uh, it's, it has come out. Um, it's come out in the MRG report. It's come out in this document that I'm going to send you. Um, but the, before we got this, 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 um, classified document, uh, we already knew about all the reportings. That we knew about the report from the people in Mapua that saw that saw the kids on the boat on the 3rd of January. That, that was already known. But the police, at, at the time, the police covered all this up. They, as far as I know, none of that was disclosed, disclosed to the defence. None of those sightings of Ben and Olivia. Well, one was um, Ted and Yvonne Walsh saw Ben and Olivia on the mystery catch uh, on the 2nd of January in the morning coming out of Queen Charlotte Sound. They, they were, ten and, um, Ted and Yvonne Watts were on a charter boat with a whole, with about a dozen other people all fishing. They all saw this distinctive yacht go past with a young couple sitting in the, in the cockpit with their hands up behind their backs appearing like they couldn't move. Ted Walsh later was shown a photograph uh, a, of Olivia Hope as she looked on New Year's Eve, and he absolutely positively identified Olivia Hope as that girl that he saw on that boat that day on the 2nd of January. Uh, the police discounted and discredited his his um, his information, completely overlooked the fact that, that 12 other people had seen it as well. And, and then according to a conversation I had with, with Yvonne Walsh, who's still alive, unfortunately Ted has passed, according to Yvonne Walsh, the police bullied Ted and, and, and uh, Yvonne to try and get them to change their evidence. Uh, Yvonne's own words were that the police got really heavy with them, trying to tell them, no, you didn't see that boat at all, you're lying, come on, change your story, uh, which is what they did to Guy Wallace as well. They tried to force him to change his evidence. Um, what a shocking story. What a shocking, shocking story. And how do you live? How do you yourself live knowing all this and Scott Watson in jail for 25 years? Well, when I, when I, <laughs> I said to Keith Hunter when we had one of our talks after, you know, when I just had met him again for the first time in many years, I said, look, Keith, I said, this is all your bloody fault, I said. You and your damn book. I said, I can't sleep at night now. I wake up every night tossing and turning and thinking about this case. I, I can't believe how bad it is. And and when I when I went and visited Scott, I've gone and visited him in jail twice. And I when I went when I drove home, I, I, I burst into tears in the car. Because it was it just came home to me how shocking this this was what what they'd done to this guy you know this this guy that was portrayed in the press as this evil woman hating psychopath i I went there to, to prison with with his partner of fourteen years she went with me, and he was so polite he was pulling a chair out and getting his cups of tea and I thought this guy is so I always thought I was a gentleman, but he he put me to shame the way he treated his mm. girlfriend. And I thought, this isn't a woman hater. This isn't a psychopath. This is 
this is just an or he's just an ordinary guy like like we are. He's he's not a monster. Uh, and, is his and, partner and, still stood by him? They have they have since split up. Um, but they're still in they're still in contact. And uh, I when I went down to the to the Justice for All meeting, I met up with Chrissy. We, we've stayed friends, and we went out to dinner together. And uh, she's a she, lovely woman. She you've met her? Yes. Yeah, oh, she's lovely. Yeah, we, we went and had a meal together, and she she said that Scott, she's still in touch. I think she speaks to Scott on the phone at least every week. They're not like partners anymore, but she keeps, speaks to him, and he, he, he still tells her that he loves her, and I believe that's true. Um, you know, the, the whole the whole thing is just, you know, I don't go around crying all the time for nothing, but I, I was so, honestly, it was such an emotional thing for me, and to be honest with you, getting involved in this case has changed my life. It's it's um, it's changed who I am. Uh, it's changed me. It's, it's changed me from my life. I used to be a very selfish person in the truth himself, and now I'm spending all my time fighting for somebody who can't fight for himself. And uh, it's, it's such a righteous cause, and 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 I'm committed to being in this for for the long haul. For as long as I live, as long as I'm alive, I'll still keep fighting this because it is, and I've said it before, it is, it is the most – I've said it on on my blogs that I put on Facebook. I'm, I'm, in the, I'm a moderator in the Free Scott Watson Facebook group, and, and, I, and I've said this many times. This was the most evil act ever perpetrated by a group of people whose job it is supposed to be to uphold the law. And and they did absolutely the opposite. How is it upholding law? How is it keeping the community safe to deliberately let killers go and then set somebody, an innocent person up to take the rap, to take the heat off the, the people who really did the crime for whatever reason, because you want to protect them or because it's going to be too hard to go after them? You know, that, that, that's... To, you're just uh, prosecuting somebody by expediency. It's just easier. How, to get how is his dad holding up? Oh, look, terrific! I, I I met Tom, his brother, and Chris at the at the meeting I went down to. Chris was very sick a while ago with prostate cancer, and we were all worried that that he he was wasn't going to make it. And I heard recently from Tom that he's he's recovered. He's in remission. This is the dad, right? The dad, he's, he, he, he's, he's 75 years old, but he, he's, his health is good. I, when I met him, I said, how is your health now? And you asked him, and he said, no, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really feeling well. And he looked fit and well. And it, that, that's because Chris Watson is such an amazing man, and I, and I, I look up to him so much. Um, and Tom, the, the both of them. Scott is so lucky to have such an awesome family behind him. And I, I um, listened to something that I that I posted online. It was Sandy Watson speaking at the last Justice for All meeting. I think it was in two, 2019 or 18. Sandy is a sister. Sandy is a sister. And she, she was talking about the impact it all had on the family and, and, and the way they were treated, the way the police, during the investigation, the police went around their neighbours house to house telling all their neighbours what bad people they were that should stay away from them. They, they tried to search... Scott's grandparents' house with a fake warrant. 
they turned up to the door waving a piece of paper saying, we've got a warrant to search your house. The grandfather grabbed the piece of paper off them and it was a blank piece of paper. This is the sort of thing that they were doing. They were going around bullying witnesses to try to force them to change their evidence. They were they were bullying the family. They chased Sandy Dot Watson down the road, threatening to take her children off her. Uh, th th these, these are officers of the law. These are people that are sworn to, to protect the public. What are they doing? What, you know, what kind of a police force have we got that does Okay, it was 25 years ago, but has anything changed? We have to ask. We well, never got away we, with that. Tell me, I mean, and how come the media aren't beating the drum? Gosh, the media played a big part in, in the defamation of Scott Watson, uh, pre-trial defamation of Scott. They were right on board with the police. They, they were they were part of the lynch mob. And I, I don't know what I don't know what their what their stance is now. I know we've got people like Paul Henry who, who've been a big supporter, but he's he's an individual. He's not part of any news organization. The, the, the news haven't been that supportive. I mean, we, we held a big, I organized a big um, protest for Scott Watson about five years ago down in the bottom of Auckland by the waterfront. Let all the media know that we were there because we wanted them to come and take photos, report on it. No one showed up. No one showed up. It's like they... It's like they put a boycott on us or something. It's like they've been ordered by the government to keep their hands off this, you know. We, um, we're, we're, well, what we're, I know about journalism is this. Yeah. That journalists get great stories from the police. Yeah. And they're a great source of stories and news. Yeah. yeah. And they don't want to dry that up. And yeah. so they tend to run the police line. And, of course, it's got worse over the years. So it's become... The, the police use the media yeah. for their own ends. It's a it's a shocking circumstance. And Keith Hunter has been on this case for how long? Oh gosh, when did Keith well Keith got involved? Um he he made the documentary Murder on the Blade in two thousand and three. Um, there you go. I that it, was a wonderful documentary. I've got a copy of it. I I, I, my, I wore mine out watching it. Keith, <laughs> Keith mm. gave me another one, but it, it is it's marvelous. Um, and and anybody that um, <coughs> he sent copies of that to everybody in Parliament. Uh, you and Nando Tanchos were the only two that responded. Um, the rest of them are too scared or don't want to don't want to rock the boat. They're just scared of you. They're scared of losing the redneck vote if they say anything. They think if they don't say anything at all, they won't offend anybody. So they're well, in my mind, they're they're all weak and useless. That's why I have so much Well, you know, when you when you have someone of the experience and caliber of Keith Hunter yeah. who produced a documentary, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, has he written two books on Scott Watson's case? Or one? No, he wrote one, he only wrote one book one, uh, called Trial by Pickery, and it was and in he, 2007, I believe. Okay, and he wrote two on uh, the crew murders, I think. That's where I've got confused. Oh, he, he, I've read one of his called uh, The Case the of Miss the Missing Bloodstain, yes. and that was on the crew murders, yeah. That That's was a, a fantastic movie. book. So here he is. Let's just picture this. Yeah. Highly accredited journalist and documentary maker, very, very well respected. Yeah. He produces a documentary. Yeah. He writes a full book, putting yeah. his case. Yeah. Now, in the normal course of events, 
you would, if you're the police force or the government mm. or whatever, you mm. would have to say he is wrong for these reasons. One, yeah. two, three, four, five. Yeah. Doesn't happen. No, no. And you know, and it doesn't happen because it can't be done. All they no. can say is, look, he was convicted. End of story. Yeah, that's what they do say. Yeah. He was tried he was tried by a jury of his peers, uh, which he wasn't actually, because they the judge broke the law and allowed the police to vet the jury. And that gave them the and it's this is in Keith Hunter's book, um it gave them the ability not not only because the judge didn't want anybody in the jury who 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 who'd had a criminal record, not just serious ones or any criminal record at all. That was that was the purported reason for wanting to vet the jury, but that also gave the police the ability to remove anybody from the jury pool who had boating experience, who would understand the Erie Bay trip, and and who would understand the business of boats being rafted up together and and not rocking and making a commotion if somebody was being murdered. Uh, I think it's very clear. I think I think the way Keith puts it in his book is much advantage would have gone to the prosecution by the removal of anybody from the jury with boating knowledge. Mm. He doesn't he doesn't accuse them of actually doing it, but he points out that they could have done it. And I think it's clear that they did do it from the point of view that if there'd been any boating people on that jury, like myself, I would have laughed their evidence out. Of course, I of course I would have said, no way. No way a boat can go that fast. No way you can murder somebody in a raft up without making a noise. And on no, no boat, way can Guy Wallace mistake the two boats. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He was an experienced. So I would have just sat there in a jury room, and I'd I, even I were, oh, if I was the only one, I would. They would have ended up with a hung jury. I would have said, no, there is no way I'm voting guilty based on that evidence. So I think it's it's very clear to me that they made sure nobody was was. Um, on the jury who was qualified to make those judgments. Um, Neville, in, in wrapping up, what yep. happens, what's happening next? Uh, well, the, the uh, he's got his parole hearing coming up, which uh, doesn't, when you, when you read the documents I'm going to send you by, by five o'clock on Friday, uh, we're going to send you all the stuff pertaining. It's not, it's only two or three pages. Don't, don't, Worry, it's not going to be a huge volume, but it's all the stuff pertaining to what the, the all the parole reports that have happened up until now, and and the reasons they've given for for denying him parole. Um, if they carry on down the same road that they've been on, it's almost certain they're going to deny him parole again, and uh, he won't be eligible again for another five years. Uh, that uh, so we're we're concerned about that. We're trying to. Trying to do something, we're not going to just sit back and watch it happen. We're going to try and do something about it. Um, this action group that I'm talking about is is made up of some very dedicated people, and we're very very serious about what we're going to do. And and it's driven by a guy. We were being advised and and driven by a guy. I won't mention his name, but he's. I think he told me he's been in in, in the high court representing himself in about a hundred and on about 140 different occasions. Wow. He always represented himself. He has vast knowledge of the justice system, how it works. Um, we're going. The next thing we're going to do is is confront the the Court of Appeal situation, the fact that we believe Justice Pankhurst has tainted any chance Scott Watson has of a fair trial in New Zealand because of the comments that he made 
to, to the Court of Appeal. We don't think that, that he should have made it. We don't know what his brief was. We're going to find out. Um, in the me in the meantime, if things go ahead as planned, as they are planning them, if we don't, if somebody doesn't intervene, if I was a betting person, I would bet that they they've already decided they're going to find Scott guilty again in the Court of Appeal. I, I believe that decision was already made at a very high up level. Um, you, you might ask, why are they doing all this? Why are they so determined to keep this guy in jail? And in closing, I would just say this to you: that if they if they do if they do release him, if they suddenly turned around after all this time, and and said, okay, he's not guilty, you can go home. They are then going to have to go back and look at the case again and say, okay, if Scott Watson didn't kill them, who did? And they're yes. going to have to reopen the investigation. And that, Boy, and and how did we get it wrong? Yeah, and that is going to be a tin of worms that is going to be unimaginably complex and it's going to cause huge embarrassment for a lot of people. Mm. So in order to avoid that embarrassment, that it's the easiest thing for them to do is just keep Scott Watson and Zayar, keep following the false narrative that, oh, he's this terrible murderer where you can't even let him out on parole because he's so dangerous. I mean, that whole story is absolutely false. I know. I I had it explained to me when I was an MP by a very senior... Yeah, uh, civil servant, like one of the top few, and yeah. he explained to me, straight faced, basically, yeah, that the system, faith in the system, yeah. was more important than any one individual. Absolutely, absolutely, that's a good way of putting it. And they, they, they don't want to lose credibility. They don't no. want it to be realised. Um, what can happen? Una Yagos, the Solicitor General, has quoted recently in a newspaper saying uh, of the Alan Hall case, saying that I think that the headline was "Sometimes we get it wrong," or "Sometimes we make that's right." Sometimes we make mistakes. Now, I challenge her on that. Deliberately withholding evidence—that's not, not a mistake. That, that yeah. is perverting the course of justice. That is a jailable offence. And she, to water it down by saying, oh, sometimes you make mistakes, it is just watering it down. It's, mm. it's excuse-making. What they actually did is they deliberately, they broke the law by deliberately withholding evidence from the court, evidence which could have set, set a, 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 an innocent man free years before. And to water that down and say, oh, we got it wrong, sorry, it's not, not well, good enough. If someone was interested in this case, yeah. what would be the best thing they could read or look at? Oh look, um, you can still you can still buy Murder on the Blade. You contact Hunter Productions. Um, just Google that; it'll show show you the, the website. You can buy that for about twenty something dollars. Um, get hold of the book Trial by Trickery. Very good. Um, the Marlborough Mystery by Mike Kelliger. You've you, you've met Mike. Yes. Uh, they're, they're they're all good books. Um, right. Those two would be the top ones, I'd say, okay. Trial by Trickery and, and the Mulgrims. Well, Neville, thank you for your work. Yeah. Thank you for coming on to our show. This is Neville Munro speaking up on behalf of a miscarriage yeah. of justice with regards to Scott Watson yeah. and his efforts. And yeah. when you do look at these books, I realise that you're only hearing one side. I've tried to follow the other side so I could yeah. have a balanced view. Can't yeah. really find it. It does make it hard to sleep. Yeah, yeah, it does, doesn't it? 
Well, thank you very much, Rodney. I appreciate very much the, uh, Not at the all. opportunity. And uh, I hope that we, that we can stay in touch. I would like to we stay will. in touch with you. We'll and I'll send you, I'll send you this information. And the thing I need from you is for you to give my very best regards to Keith Hunter, a great man. Absolutely. In fact, I'll I'll ring him up now. Great. <laughs> so I don't forget. Tell yeah. him we'll have him on. Uh, that was yeah. Neville Munro advocating on behalf of Scott Watson. Uh, you're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio. If you're interested, I can tell you, um, Keith Hunter's and Mike Gallagher's book and Keith Hunter's documentary, great reads, fascinating, very, very disturbing. Thank you for listening. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Well, our next guest going to be interesting, but I've got a challenge on my uh, on my plate because, as you know, I struggle with names. I struggle with surnames. And just to, um, what's the word, damn me, uh, my producer has given me the task of introducing our guests, and it's Yosha. Oh, I did it wrong. Yoshua mm -hmm. Nerink and Frank Van Stencil, who have wire wrapper Eco Farm, and they're going to tell us all about their farm, what they do on it, and how they got onto it. Frank, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> I can say Frank. Now, please help me. How do I say Yoshua? Yos. Okay, so we'll say Yoshua. Yoshua. And yeah. it's spelt, by the way, everyone, it's spelt J-O-S-J-E. And it's Dutch, yeah, I, right? I, yeah, I always say it's like Josie, except for the I is J. And um, in Holland, so we're originally Dutch, and we came here in 92 for our clean and green image and lived the good, the, 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 the good life. And so Jos is a boy's name. I was kind of a tomboy when I was ah. young. And I changed my name. My real name is different, which I don't sell you. My passport is something else. Yeah. And um, so Jos is a boy's name. And then in in Dutch, if you put J-E behind a boy's name, it becomes a girl's name. Okay. So you, how do you say it again? Josje. 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 Oh, I can yeah. do this, Josje. Oh, I think I can do this, Josje. Look, it's a bane in my life, and um, I often get accused of being rude, and I'm trying so hard, so hard, and my mouth goes all funny places. Now, tell us, good morning, tell us, please, all about the wire wrapper eco farm. What is it? Okay, Obviously, so it's in the wire wrapper, and it's a farm. <laughs> yeah, so wire wrapper eco farm stands for W-E-F. Rings a bell. Oh, and yes. We, we build back better. Oh, <laughs> yes. And we own nothing and be happy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I own nothing and I'm miserable, so I don't know how it's working out for you. Uh, well, we, we got the... We got the fright of our life when we uh, realized our name was hijacked. <laughs> <laughs> By a German, no less. Yes, by a German. <laughs> yeah. um, so, if you know about the German, 
then we do the opposite. That's the show. Uh, yeah, that's a good start. <laughs> Whatever the WEF is saying, you do the exact opposite. Yes, <laughs> yes. So we actually do what they say they're going to, they want to be doing. So we are not inverse. Um, so, but now, yeah. So this is this is the thing, Rodney. We end up in uh, we've ended up in a challenge around words and definitions and science and. Um, if I would say we've got a, a small mixed farm, which looks after the environment, looks after the people, looks after the local economy, and it looks after people that feel responsible for their own health. And it's based on science because Yoshi and I both studied uh, agriculture and we ended up studying development and sustainable agriculture to be a bit more specific. And um, that uh, we've seen the terminology being changed and the definitions being changed to to our great despair and now we can't use the proper definitions anymore no so there's so been a we got an ecological organic farm and it's sustainable uh yeah and that's what we're doing uh great well isn't it terrible though it happens once you see it you see it happening all of the, all around you where good yeah. causes get hijacked. Yeah. Yeah. And they take so, the words yeah. and they spout the words and you suddenly realise that you're thinking these people, you're making great progress because these people have come on your side, these powerful organisations and corporations, and then suddenly you're realising that their objective isn't your objective. Their objective is money and power. Yeah, and, and it's our, terribly, and our, terribly disappointing. Yeah. Yes, it is. And our objective always was, and still is, to take responsibility for looking after the environment, uh, the plants and animals, uh, the, and in that way, grow quality food and raise a family that. Uh, is healthy and um, can raise a family and that is healthy and can raise <laughs> a family that is healthy so it's on a continuous basis and we prize ourselves lucky that we went this way because we now have raised a family on the basis of true sustainability and um, virtually the kids eat off the land. They eat our soil, basically, and yes. they've never seen a doctor. They don't know what a doctor is. How old are they? Kids. How old are they? Got four kids. 30, 28, 20, and 17. Uh, so there was a gap in between, and um, the youngest is year 12 haku here in town um yeah we were two weeks in new zealand in 92 when i got pregnant so it's wow. a very fertile country so yeah, that's how it all started country. off our, our journey those kiwi zealand. guys are good at it eh? yeah 
Well, um, he's still a dutchie. Um, uh, and then we have recently got our first um, grandchild, our mandated grandchild, kind of, uh, because our youngest daughter of 20 couldn't go to the doctor on and get the services she needed to find out what was happening and uh, and then kind of life starts growing and we've we've got to be with all the most proud grandparents um right. yeah but um it, yeah. Was a, it was a bit of a no it was more than a hassle it was pure discrimination really but but okay <laughs> yeah tell me she couldn't she sorry she couldn't yeah, there's lots of there's lots, lots of, of side roads we can take. There's lots of different stories, <laughs> but the, um, maybe going back. So we so start with the farm. I want to know about the farm. Yeah, Tell yeah, me about the farm. the farm. What is it? What? So, how big is it? Um, what do you grow there? Where is it? So we call it. We call the farm is soil and soil based living. That's what we call it. We, yes. We, um, uh, and. It's based on what on this on the science that we found that uh, promotes uh, sustainable agriculture or agroecology. Now, yes. agroecology, um, all, all the um, trendy farm things of the last 30, 40 years, like organic, uh, uh, biological, uh, permaculture food forest all that stuff is based on agroecology yes and i got a i got a soil science degree but i also got a background in agroecology in, yes. within my soil science degree and i'm also as a soil scientist um got drawn into soil biology and yes. that's this is an interesting topic to go into as well but our so that's our so our farm is based on my on inviting microbial communities that grow plants no that grow soil that grow plants that grow animals and that grow healthy people mm. and and in that sense uh, moderate the, the 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 local conditions or the weather to invite more life and living and in that concept you actually create abundance while our education seems to teach us that scarcity is the way of economic living and mm. that puts fear into people and now i'm getting sidetracked uh, it's tell me what, what get sidetracked. of course well there's so much to get sidetracked about and we love the sidetracks tell me what do you grow on the farm everything in small quantities so um Maybe we should start with uh, uh, how we got to start the okay. farm and how we got here. So okay, we met at the university and we studied tropical agriculture in the Netherlands. It used to be called the um, school, colonial school, the colonial school, where kind of Dutch farm managers would go to Indonesia and Suriname to the Dutch colonies and. Run plantations. And run plantations, coffee plantations, citrus plantations, etc. And in the 80s, when we were there, um, it we went, it, it had developed from the real colonialist type of work to more aid work. And we ended up in Central America and um, we lived there for a bit. And we ended up, we, we worked with very, in, in very rural um 
situations. And we found out that actually the eight word, it all sounded really nice, um, actually was more doing more harm than good for the social structure of the, the people. And we felt that we were going to be uh, doing that kind of work. We needed to um, stay there. Stay there. And instead of as a consultant, come in, do it for two years, go to the next project. And because they, consultants come in, they say, oh, throw your sustainable traditional systems aboard, take on the Western way of uh, agriculture. Industrialized farming. Industrialized. Corporate, corporate farming. Exactly. And, and um, it was more, it became a a a, um, a number game. Like there were like eight organizations mm. in the same small region working and they were all fighting to get the the, the they were either bribing people to join their project or they were uh, um, bribing or, or coercing them into their projects. And, and, uh, and of course, in a fun, funny way, you would feel when you look back on it now, I guess, like a marketing arm for industrial pesticides and fertilizers. Exactly. 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 And then they would say to the government, for example, the Honduran governments, okay, the Dutch government will give you so much money and aid, but in return for that, in order to get that money, you'll have to take Shell on to supply you with petrol or something, or mm. Philips has to be able to build a, a factory, or, you or the Americans would say you have to take on these cars, and those American, like American cars, and they weren't absolutely not uh, oh suited goodness. for the for the, for the region. Oh my and, goodness! Yeah, so we decided we didn't want to be part of that, and so we thought we'd go and look for a country we can immigrate to, and uh, where we feel safe, uh, where the economy and the political system and everything is, is is stable, where we can put our roots down, where we can start a family, and um, well, show by doing, live the example farm okay. kind of. We, we instead of coercing people what to do we we we'd seen there that really instead of telling people what you do is wrong and uh, use our fertilizers and our seeds um you just hang over the fence and talk to the neighbor and show off yeah. how how, lu how lucky you are right <laughs> we're talking you're on rally check radio it's real talk with rodney hyde we're talking to yoshi and frank we're talking about the wire wrapper eco farm and what an amazing story about going to Honduras. So was it the experience in Honduras that changed you, or had you been thinking that way in university? Um, we knew that something wasn't quite right. Um, I, I personally have always had trouble with the educational system as well. Yes. Um, and, and in the university, I ended up, getting really interested, which was unusual for me, actually. But I, I got really interested, but I also got really dissatisfied with what they offered. I already got kicked out of uh, teacher's training school because they were trying to teach us how to teach, and they didn't know how to teach themselves, basically. Please. So um, but I, I got really interested in into the soil stuff, and they talked about soil chemistry, and they talked about soil physics, and wow, that's really interesting and how this works. And you got this diffused double layer around clay that makes sure that plants get nutrients, et cetera, et cetera. And I kept on thinking, 
this is too mechanical. Something's missing. Something's missing. And then uh, in the last, uh, in the second year, we got an hour on soil biology. And in that hour on soil biology, I got um, goosebumps listening to the story because there was the missing bit. They were talking about um, um, uh, uh, actually, they were actually talking about creating life out of minerals, it, and that was the soil biology. But you didn't get much details, and it was an hour, and you never heard of it again. Um, My so, goodness, it's a, it's a bit like medicine where you get an hour on nutrition, right? It's not a bit like medicine. It's exactly the same, and you get exactly, the, and you get the same. Uh, fast concept around uh, uh, materialistic uh, um, endorsements and regulators that, um, well, you, you, you get the same propaganda. It's the, and it's the same people, Rodney. It's yes. the FDA that it's the FDA that set the trend in the world. It's the um, American uh, food regulation. Food regulation. And the FDA, and what's the other one? The 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 same ones for the for pharmaceutical industry. The, the so Farm the Bureau, role. the Department of Agriculture. They keep yeah. changing their names, but we know. Yes. And I mean, these yeah. bureaucracies and politics, um, particularly in the big jurisdictions, get corrupted by money. Uh, not necessarily corrupt, but possibly corrupt. But just you know, giving money and lobbying. And so even the food pyramid and the development aid becomes a subsidy to corporations, right? It does, it exactly. Does. Yeah, and we didn't want to be part of that. So, and we... that, so, so over the years, that became pretty clear and it and unfolded in front of our eyes. And when uh, you're in Honduras, you could see it. Yes, yeah. yes, you could, and you could see the social economic angle quite clearly as well. Now in New Zealand, you can see it quite clearly as well, and it's the same trend as all over the, the rest of the world. We get a focus on on growth, and uh, we get because of the economic system uh, hollowing out of the uh, educational system, hollowing it out of the social system, hollowing out of the rural countryside. Um, uh, hollowing out of the uh, health system because the health system is no longer a health system; it's more a, uh, a sickness system that promote that pushes uh, uh, chemical solutions. Um, uh, you, the only thing left to do is to lead by example and show and uh, and and create local opportunities to live. Uh, uh, um, a responsible and a healthy lifestyle on the basis of what's supposed to be the cornerstone of uh, the local economy as a producing farm that produces food. And of course, for all of our human existence since we started farming, that's the way we've done it. Yeah. Until, I guess, we industrialized, had petrochemicals, had a science that I love science. I think science is the greatest thing in the world. But 
a lot of what you see as science that's presented as science has a hubris to it, doesn't it? Has this has this so, arrogance? So yes. I I think it's it's about time that we in New Zealand have a discussion between science and scientism. Um, now everybody has his own definitions about science. To me, science yes. is to me science is um, exploring the truths and finding solutions in a, in a in an objective way. Yes. Um, um, I'll give you I'll I'll give you an example, and and it's and it serves public good, and this is, and we are, and uh, from that point of view, we are sort of missing the boat lately because what's dominating is uh, is 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 quite different. What I and many other people call scientism, and that's uh, um. A science that has been taken over by uh, by by corp by corporate and money. And it, the obvious example is is the following, Rodney, if I may, because um, we've had this recent his historic event that talk that's put the focus on immune systems. Well, it should have put the focus on immune systems, and it didn't. Now, the the key example for that is. Uh, is the sun and vitamin D and the the and the structure water that it creates in the body. Now, those are scientifically based uh, statements, but you never heard of it. And and those scientifically based statements are made by organizations that are independent researchers. They are, they they don't. They are not pushing any sort sort or form of uh, products to make money. They just share. They're trying to share that because it increases good health. The opposite. The opposite side of that is you have another influence of the sun that's being noticed by science, which is called skin cancer or, or melanoma, and that is re relatively well push forward because over the last 10 15 years more and more people are doing the what's what's the terminology slap and slap and stick or something slap yeah. and slop stuff now that's also scientific based but it comes with some form of bias by the researchers because they really want to sell the produce now that's that sort of science seems to dominate the media. The other science doesn't dominate the media. And in my view, one science is called science, and the other one is scientism because it's turned into a belief system that believes in profit rather than any uh, rather than uh, human health. Well, I I um I concur with you one hundred percent because. Science has been corrupted by government money and corporate money, and the one that pays the money uh, gets results. And I've seen this over and over again, where government gets a bear in its bonnet and then funds research to this end. And um, you don't get results by proving the government wrong. You don't get money for proving the government wrong on a something. 
and you don't get money for proving the corporation wrong. And so they become lackeys. And of course, we've seen the same thing with the media and how they're funded. It's extraordinary. And no, until COVID came along, um, I thought the media was sort of biased. <laughs> I didn't think they were totally corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, and of course, the yeah. immune the immune system is a perfect analogy for the soil because here's this immune system and the soil system, which we don't begin to comprehend and understand. And we treat it so disrespect, disrespectfully. And it's always, the answer is always sort of like a binary thing. Oh, your soil's not well. Put some of this chemical on. Oh, your body's not well. Here, take this. And rather than appreciating the complexity, the incredible, wonderful, mysterious complexity, which science is helping us to understand, but it's not like a, it's not a mechanical system, is your point, right? That's what you said. No, it's not. It's not a mechanical system. And when you have these people saying over COVID, oh, yes, it's safe and effective, and you're stupid if you can't see that, they're not scientists. They're propagandists, clearly. Yep. Because they can't know, right? They can't know that. Well, they can, they can't. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, Frank has always been saying, like when he gives a workshop or a, or a course, kind of, we've been treating, how do you say it? Oh, we've been treating people like animals we've, and animals like plants and plants like soil and soil like dirt. Well, ah, that's a great other, way. It should be the other way around. We should be we should be treating dirt like soil, and then it becomes soil. We should be treating soil like plants, and then they become plants. We should be treating plants like animals, and then they become animals. And we should be treating and treating animals like human beings, and human beings should move up to become angels. <laughs> yeah. Now, now we're getting spiritual. <laughs> Well, it's an interesting thing because um, when you see, and I'm not dishing farmers, I think farmers are amazing, but when you see soil on a big farm, it's dead, right? Yep. Yeah. And it's regarded as a reciprocal to hold a plant up to which you apply nitrogen, phosphorus, um, and my mind's gone. Um NPK nutrients. You, nutrients. you apply nutrients. Now the irony is there are sixty-four nutrients that we've recognized by now. So which yes. is pretty much the whole of the periodic table are nutrients. Yes. <laughs> which is um pretty logical because that's what the earth is made of, and we are made of the earth. Um this <laughs> this is yeah, logic dictates all this sort of stuff and yeah. science proves it. So and we have had in industrialized corporate uh, agriculture in the beginning after the world wars when they um, needed to find new uh, um, outlets for the for their factories they discovered that some of those things they produced for the war machines actually made plants grow as <laughs> made plants grow as well but yeah. 
that so we can we can focus on those uh but the thing was that were only a few elements and you need 64 now and then you need the 64 in the right ratio so you need some of this and and then at the same time you need some of that and then at the same time you need some of that so it's a very complex design you you as a farmer being convinced by the product pushes that uh, one, two, three, four, or 12 elements put on your soil is going to rectify your problem if, if well, that is, that is a fallacy, even if the diagnosis has been correct. And diagnosing a soil comes with a whole lot of other challenges as well. So, yes, it's, um, it's quite, you can't blame the farmers. No. They've been guided down the wrong track because of the scientific. So with, yes. So you came to your farm and started with the soil. I did. Yes. So and what I, did what did that mean in practical terms? In practical terms, it means that you have to acknowledge that the soil is not just the top 10 centimeters it's everything below it and you want to make sure that it becomes inviting for life as deep as possible um so what makes the soil work is moderate conditions conditions that are conducive to life and everybody can actually determine what which, what which those conditions are just by thinking about it, but there's scientific scientism behind that. So you make sure you got air, water, warmth, or sunlight penetrating the soil as far as possible. And the, the job is to get life in the soil, to get the microbial populations and the insects that depend on the microbial populations, like the worms and everything in the soil. You basically create an environment or a habitat that that invites them and then you have to grow a plant community on top of it that enhances that as well so just growing grass might be nothing wrong with just growing grass but the fact of the matter is it it's only sets roots in the in the top 30 40 centimeters so that is limiting the exp exploration of life in the soil so what we did is make sure that the exploration of life in the soil got done to a significant depth. Now, the original landscape here was uh, podocarp forest. So um, having taken away the podocarp forest would a mean... A long time ago, that is. Yet, well, having taken away the podocarp forest would mean that the soil on a deeper level will start to lose life and become rigid. So that's that's a uh, in, in in biological terms, it's you have a mature system and you set it back into a, a, a juvenile system, and the soil becomes rigid again. So if you leave nature to it, it will recover. But you can support that yourself by increasing more mature characteristics into the system, and that's basically what we've done. What what does it mean to introduce mature characteristics into the system? What what did you um, do? I, so I I gave a description of what we did, and then I gave, I I put the terminology behind it. 
So it means that you create, now we're talking about the soil, you create uh, more warmth in the soil, you create more moisture in the soil, you create more air in the soil, and you, and you make sure it, it's being created on a deeper and deeper and deeper level. And, every, and, and, and that will be followed by plant life. So the plant life will go in deeper and deeper. So grasses do the top, then you've got herbaceous uh, uh, plants that do go deeper than that, and then you've got shrubs that go deeper than that, and then you've got uh, trees that go deeper than that. So we've introduced all that in, in the first year. And then we basically let it evolve, and then that moderates the whole environment. Basically, it takes the away, it takes away the extreme of the wind, it takes away the extreme of the sun, it takes away the extremity of too much water, it takes away the extremity of not enough water. So, so it's it's a bit like the um, what, how to, uh, this is this beer that gets. Is pudding and it's not too hot and not too cold. It's oh, yes, Goldilocks. Goldilocks. Yeah, so basically, it's the Goldilocks principle. You 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 create the right conditions for life. In other words, you create the right terrain for the microbes, the plants, and animals to flourish. So Which your is, your animals say would be walking amongst grass shrubs and trees to get depth yes. and life into the soil rather than just grass yes yeah so so you could the other way of uh, sharing this is in ecological terms is you increase diversity mm. yeah now yeah. the thing is that you have to because um this landscape that we took on we took it on on purpose because we traveled around in New Zealand and we thought on the basis of what we have learned and seen and experienced that there was a, a, a poor, well, we thought that the, the potential was being underexplored and not acknowledged. Yeah? Yeah. So New Zealand could have been the food basket of the Southern Hemisphere, of the world, if, if, if you wanted to. And this has been promoted, but uh, never really took off because it it looks like um, the uh, free ecological services are not being appreciated, and that and the main reason is because media doesn't push it out because the media is being sponsored by the fertilizer pushers, etc., uh, etc. Et so my story I could never share it. I, I never had an audience because there was soon. So I, I used to be a farm advisor uh, next to running my own farm, uh, and in that capacity, I also became. Um, I met your colleague Ken Sh 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 Shippy. Oh, Ken, you know, Ken? yes, Ken Shirley. Shirley yes. Shirley, Shippy. That's another. He was your oh. boss, wasn't he? For a while. Yeah. So uh, I. Yeah, uh, that's another story. <laughs> um, where was I? You were saying about how you couldn't share your story because you know the media wouldn't run your story. Yeah, so I I tried writing articles. I set up an advisory service, uh, and I did pretty well. But because 
when I go to people, I am pretty good in explaining what's going on, and um, I'm socially well adjusted. So, I on a one-on-one -on -one basis, I was uh, very successful, and I, I made a decent living out of it as well. But the fact of the matter is, and I, so I pushed myself as an independent researcher thinking that that would make a difference but i think people don't realize what independent means nowadays anymore anyway yeah. um so but soon as i leave the farm the next day the uh, product pushes come in and they share the opposite story again so it's the repeating the message is uh is actually winning from the public good message that e that eco ecology serves you and it will serve the planet and it will serve the future of your family as well. So, um, and you sort of must feel. And like then I thought I do it in a bigger organization, so I got involved with the organic sector, and uh, I got reasonably successful in that as well because I ended up writing the content, the scientific content for the boss man which for a while was Ken Shirley. And I, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> and, I th and we were just about uh, setting up a whole advisory service uh, and research service across New Zealand. And then um, the organic sector shot itself in the foot by uh, internal, um, uh, I, would, I, I think it was jealousy. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure. Anyway. It, it it was really really nice project and Ken uh, Ken left, which was a pity in a way because he opened doors. Uh, but that would have been, that was a nice project and it would have been nice if to, if that would have come through. But then I ended up going back farming and uh, focusing on what I what I sh shared before, creating diversity, growing soil, growing plants, growing animals, and we've now reached the stage. Uh, Oh, we, we, we made a little documentary or oh, some people made a little documentary that went viral across the world. So every year we get a, a bunch of people coming to wanting to learn uh, about uh, the way we farm and the way we oh, how wonderful. Food. Yeah. And so that's and we wanted to turn that into a formal uh, institute, but then and uh, the governmental overreach happened around COVID and people couldn't get in and out of the country anymore. And that made, sort of made it impossible for us to formalize it. So that so we're now in the, in, in, a, in the phase of formalizing it. But for 10, 12 years, we've grown uh, food for about 100, 120 families. And we serve them a diet. And that diet was based on the diet of the soil. To keep the soil diverse, you need to grow diversity. But to keep people healthy, you need to grow diversity as well. Because if you grow potato after potato after potato, the soil gets bored and it dies. If you eat potato after potato after potato on, at, at the dinner table, um, you end up on the couch and you get around it and you also die of boredom. You So that's the simplicity of it. So... You need diversity, and we've grown that for fifteen odd years, uh, two families. But um, yeah, the governmental overreach sort of disturbed all that process, and we're now reinventing ourselves a little bit.
it's a it's a funny thing um i i started out as an environmentalist and uh realized what you did too and i realized that our leading environmentalists were political first and environmental second does that make sense yeah, and, it's a tricky bit with all those subsidies and 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 having to write proposals to get money to do your project. Yeah. Because in the end, you write more the projects for even though you probably start off you, you, with a good intention, because of the hunt for money to keep on going and going and going and for your employees and for that this and that, you end up writing towards what the government wants and yeah instead of what's really the issue yeah so basically is it fair to say that you're farming like we've always farmed but with yeah. the understanding that science provides as to why you're doing it that's 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 a fair call it's the, our farm is modeled after the mm, middle northern European farm, and yes. that was a mixed farm, and uh, and it was based on diversity as well. It 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 honored soil, plants, and animals, uh, and 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 we are now uh, doing things uh, supported by science, and that made things a whole lot of easier because you. Uh, by doing theoretical homework, you can prevent practical mistakes, and it saves time. It saves a lot of time. Uh, it, yeah, we are. Uh, we were very lucky with the education we had, and we are very lucky that we recognize what science is and the difference between scientism. Uh, um, but we we had to learn the hard way as well because I was going to become a research scientist, and I was going to find the secret of soil, which I did find, but I was going to find it in in, in science uh, in the meantime all, all, a lot of other people have found it and we can still use that knowledge and we put it into practice and because of that uh, we've got now proof of concept on this farm um, and anybody who's uh, willing to have a good scientific look at it can come and take the data from here and uh, and and become convinced by themselves so you have been 30 years on that farm yes it started off as a piece of grass and um now you're in the middle of a, 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 a it's food it's forest it's paradise not food forest food <laughs> forest is just terminology it's paradise rotney i'm looking <laughs> at the pictures on your web page and i agree with you yes we don't How, need to go anywhere else no tell me soil is the most amazing thing. Yep. Now, is your soil now, I don't know how to word this, so correct me if I get it wrong. Is your soil now in a mature state or is it still evolving? Y yes. That's a very good question, Rodney, and this is, this is the limitation of people is that we live about 80 to 100 years 
Yeah. Yes. Now, in that respect, uh, that's very short if you compare it to the life cycle of a soil, because the life cycle of a soil is is takes takes eons and eons. Now, but you can literally uh, detect the same trend of a soil being born, a soil growing up, and a soil being mature and resilient for a long time, and uh, and then it basically becomes old and dies and becomes rigid. Like you go to central Australia, that's the example of an old rigid soil. Virtually nothing nothing grows there. Now, do uh, all soils get there? No, S soils are sometimes being disrupted by catastrophes and they don't mature just like any other critter so if you are not able to see uh, the characteristics of describing uh, being born being young and dynamic and being uh, uh, adolescent and and uh, in, and then growing to maturity, this, that these are characteristics. That th those are descriptions, and they apply from microbial colonies in petri dishes to large-scale landscapes and continents and everything in between. And um, obviously, we all know that mature people tend to do the right thing. And children, they you can't give them a knife and let them run around with it unsupervised because they don't have they don't they don't they don't have that res the responsibility feeling yet. So all that happens, all those characteristics can be seen back in the landscape as well. Now your question was, where are we? Um, this the soil that we're on was mature, but. Europeans and Maoris set it back in time and turned it into juvenile, and and and, and in that situation it becomes more competitive oriented, while mature is cooperation cooperation oriented. So we are moving away from that competitive system into a more cooperative mature system again by having introduced all that diversity that I discussed earlier, and our are we mature yet? No, but we're a hell of a lot better than we were 20 years ago when we started. And we can see that because as a farm advisor and knowing about soils, I knew about certain uh, worms that are keystone um, uh, uh, species in, in the soils development that are really, really important. And I had trouble finding any significant numbers on the farms that I visited. We now here turn over a spade of soil and there's 20 of them. Um, and wow. sometimes you can turn over soil here and the soil basically moves. You look at it, the soil moves. You find Please. farms like that, they are very, very rare. Um, so we're, we're not mature, mature but we're maturer than the property next to us. And if you start looking at and comparing the property next to us with us, then we have uh, sequestered far more carbon. We produce far better and more food, and we emit less greenhouse gases. And 
um, it, this is this is for the people that are climate change driven. I'm not. I'm, I'm environmentally driven, uh, but it's all important characteristics that increase resilience and regulation on the farm. So we are creating a balance between growth and regulation on the farm. So we do not have pests and diseases. We have little uh, outbreaks of uh, whatever it is, and then it gets controlled by another critter that jumps on it and lives off it. So mm. there's no explosions of pests and diseases or weeds or stuff like that. Now, do we? Uh, does that mean it's we we are like we work free or anything? No, we still got to work and guide the system. But it's uh, a whole lot more peaceful. There's and think oh this is this is probably key to success is having faith in nature. My faith in nature is based on science and my experience. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we do not we do not panic. We do not grab anything off the shelf to uh, go out and kill stuff because we know that nature will restore itself. And else we know how to help nature to restore itself. Sorry, Rodney. Mm. No, it's it's that wonderful thing of living within the system rather than on top of it. Yeah, yes. And and the within is absolutely crucial in every form and way. Yes. Now, you mentioned uh, in your on your webpage, which I highly commend to people, just Google Wire Wrapper Eco Farm. You mentioned uh three gentlemen. Uh, let me find this. It was Rudolf Steiner, Stuart Hill, um, and I've lost the other one. They, I, I've heard of Rudolf Steiner. I'm afraid yeah. I don't know anything about him much, and I'd never heard of Stuart Hill, and I've lost the other name. It was I'll, right I'll, I'll, I'm gonna, I'm gonna raise your interest, and I can't do anything else. I'm gonna raise your interest in Please. Rudolf Steiner. In, in Rudolf Steiner, Rodney. Oh, Infant Fleifer. Infant, Infant. Yeah, you tell me. Infant Pfeiffer. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so Rudolf Steiner. I'll, I'm going to be brief about that. In the 1920s, he wrote about what we just went through. He wrote about the vaccine, and he wrote that the vaccine is going to be destroying the soul of humanity. He wrote that and, and, and in great detail. He wrote a whole lot more, and he was a very insightful person. Uh, um, and uh, I think he, when I wasn't being in teachers' training college, I got upset with my teachers because they didn't, they didn't, they wanted to teach me how to teach, but they didn't know how to teach themselves. And what opened my eyes is when they started talking about Rudolf Steiner's teaching methods. And that made a whole lot of sense. So, so that's two examples of Steiner. Anybody interested in life and living and how we take humanity forward and make sure that our kids got a pleasant future, uh, it, it, it's probably worthwhile spending some time uh, researching Rudolf Steiner. Ehrenfried Pfeiffer was one of the first biochemists 
and he clarified a whole lot of stuff to me and what he clarified to me was that yes science is important yes chemistry is important yes physics is important but chemistry and physics you can only do in a lab it's 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 lateral it's you put a and b together and you always get c and it's not living and you can but if you introduce biology which is biochemistry it's the biology and chemistry then you find the living and this is where uh, physics and chemistry becomes alive and that's uh, and it's being governed by the biology now who are the governors of biology these are the microbial communities that live in the soil live around the plant roots live in the guts and skin and surface of animals live in the guts and skins of and and, and 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 tissue of people and all of them are related yep we used to think and this is another error in 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 in, in science that the genes were very important and they determined everything but the fact of the matter is we have more dna from the microbes in our body than our own body and it turns out that the microbes in our body in the animal's body and in the plant's body and in the soil actually govern life they make you grow and they regulate health so that was uh, Alfred Pfeiffer and then Stuart Hill Stuart Hill is an entomologist basically and an ecologist and he is, was one of the leaders scientific leaders of uh, the organic movement and he basically uh, teamed up ecology with uh, psychology and he's written some uh, and uh, marvelous papers and he started a university on uh, uh, psychological ecology or ecological uh, yeah and in that sense, he's been a great pusher of um, uh, the within living and showing that because people have trauma from their childhood, um, uh, we acted out on nature and have a negative impact on nature. Uh, and it's also the story that enhances the juvenile mature ecosystems approach very enlightening as well so if, like if a, if a listener was listening like me where would you recommend a start is there like a really good introductory book to this farming uh, yeah, um, um, yes, there are. There are good books. Um, it's um, oh, Rodney. <laughs> um, I there are good books, and I just mentioned three people that were important in my education, and they were book writers because that was the period they wrote books. 
nowadays there's a bunch of others that are using the website and and that's this has been going on for 10 15 years no longer 20 but um these are the people that tend to get uh censored uh. so so one of the challenges that we face is that we need to set up an alternative internet in which we can freely communicate and discuss what needs to be discussed uh, on experience like we have on the farm. And there's people like Zach Bush, um, Elaine Ingham, um, um, uh, gosh, what's his name? Bruce Lipton. Um, uh, I I should publish... Um, yeah, one of the things I should be doing is publish a, a list of people that are still accessible on YouTube and stuff. Although um, I think within a couple of months or years, that's going to be tricky. Like I said, we need to start working on an alternative internet system. If anybody's doing that, please let me know. I'll join. And because actually, funny enough, while you were talking, I was Googling these people and it all pops up that, you know, ah. Oh, it starts off, oh, yes, they're doing things like, you know, integrative uh, farming or ecological. Yeah, they're all then, being marginalized. And then it says occultist, uh, disinformation, misinformation, pseudoscience. Yeah. And it's the thing that gets tossed at everyone who questions the narrative. Exactly. So, so by the I... way, when you look at these people, the pictures of good health, right? <laughs> and, and and when you look at these wef characters and these health experts from america they're the opposite of pictures of good health yeah you you look at george soros and 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 old mr rockefeller and man yeah. they, they're, they're just scared the shit out of you <laughs> now yoshi i want to bring you in now because that was great, but I want to learn about Rodney. Maybe... Just, just, what, just one moment, because yes. she's got a habit of walking away when I. Oh, start that's all right, because you were talking. <laughs> she's at, because I, I take a long time. <laughs> wives, all wives walk away when the men are talking, right? So just, got... just a second. They've had that. Um, they've had that experience of the men getting on their topic, and they think I've heard this <laughs> yeah. a million times. I've I got to take a breath. Uh, I'm not even sure where she is. Don't worry. She'll be out feeding the chooks. You can help me, Frank. Tell me about raising four children on this farm. Ooh. Right. So, um, well, you get raised yourself. Remember that, Rodney? Yes. And there's, all, there's, there's things you like about your childhood and things you don't like about your childhood. What I didn't like about my childhood was the the peer pressure of my family. I I grew up in a large uh, in a large family. My father was one of fourteen, and if I farted in the morning, you know, the whole town would know it in the afternoon. Yes. Yeah, so we we were all living in the same area, and I had my own ideas, and I teamed up with Yoshi because she had similar ideas and she had a similar sort of experience. So what we decided is um, if we want to do things our way, 
um, we're going to have to move away from from the uh, peer review system that that we had locally. So hence the reason we ended up in New Zealand. Now we 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 being on your own has advantages and disadvantages. The advantage is you can raise your kids any way you like. Uh, so we did that the best we could with our own ideas. Um, and um, uh, you make mistakes. You, you, just, you, you just can't beat yourself up about that. Um, but overall, we, we are really happy because the four kids that we've raised, uh, we are very proud of them. We probably don't say that often enough, but my God. Um, like I said, they have a mind of their own. They have an immune system of their own. And they're pretty independent. Um, uh, they have a future. And I'm going to make sure that uh, the example we've been given here is going to be carrying on. Hmm. Do you that, think was that, was, that the question, was that the question? Or? No, you did well. I, 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 I'm interested in particular... They must have had an amazing lifestyle growing up literally in nature and yes. in the system that was feeding them and sustaining them. Well, in, in the beginning, it was pretty barren here, so we were pretty exposed. But, um, yes, it's, it's, uh, it, it's been pretty good. And also, too, and I notice on your webpage you quoted one of my heroes, and it's my nutrition bible, Weston A. Price. Ah, yeah, yeah. So you, you, you listen to Tom? I don't Tom know. Cowan? No. No. So Tom is one of the lead persons in um, uh, in 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 the organization, together yes. with uh, Sally Falloon, and yes. he's been, he's been writing a book books about uh, uh, health and health issues. He's a uh, he comes out of the Steiner corner as well, and yes. he's a pretty pretty interesting person. So I would put him. I would add him to the list of people to follow as well. Okay, Tom we're going Cohen. to Tom Cohen. I'll make a list and we'll put them up. If you could send us the list of people and we'll put it up with this um, show so people can find it. And, yep. But what I realized um, is how it's a terrible thing to say kids these days, but how we've let our children down yep. with their nutrition. Yep. And you can't help but think how yep. much of the issues we see with young people today, particularly um, mental, what they call mental health issues, yep. are nutrition-related. Yep. So I, I read Western A. Price before I had children and raised yep. my children on Western A. Price principles albeit yep. I wasn't a gardener then or a yep. farmer, but I, you know, followed him to a T, yep. which, as you and I will both note, is just a traditional diet. Yes. It's nothing special in a funny way, right? It's, um, it's actually very special. Yes. <laughs> and because it's, 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 it's fresh and soil-based, yes. um, locally soil-based. And, that, and um, which makes it very special. 
Yes, but it's historically how we lived. That's that's very true. And you only have to go back two or three generations and they yes. were way better off than we are now. Um, yes. And, and you will you will see that they didn't need statins and all that sort of no. stuff to, to stay mentally on top of things because we really don't have a stat, statins deficiency or, 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 or even a uh, Panadol deficiency. It's, no. it's food-related no. or water-related. So with your children, and like, because you, you, it's hard to be objective about your own children, but that nutrition, having a good diet for kids growing up, you actually can see the difference. Yes, you can. Yoshi's back, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Yoshi. Yeah. I'm getting your name right, Yoshi. Yeah, yeah, no, that's pretty no, that's, I know, I know when Frank gets talking, you think I've heard this before and you leave. I'm discussing the raising of your children, yeah. with the oldest being 30. Yeah. And that they have been raised in this amazing environment where they lived within nature. They got to interact with animals and plants and soil. They got to eat healthy, nutritious food and to yeah. understand where food comes from. Yeah. That must have been an amazing experience raising them. Yes. Yes, it was. Uh, it is. And just now looking back, um, the, 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 but I think back the best decisions we've made and I'm so glad that I've, because I wasn't so convinced as Frank was in the beginning, especially when our youngest was born. We were just, we had just immigrated to New Zealand. We were two weeks here. I got pregnant and kind of it set your life. It was already upside down because we traveled to the other side of the world. <laughs> yeah. But kind of another tumble in the, in the machine. And, um, um, yeah, we, we, we talked about things. And um, we already were pretty much on an organic or ecological pathway, finding, trying to find solutions there. And so one of the first things we decided was not to immunize. Uh, so none of our kids have been immunized. And they've had never had, like our oldest one of 30, I don't think she ever had a, uh, well, they never had antibiotics. Um, and... Um, Paracetamol or Panadol or whatever it's called, uh, it's also not something that's standard in the cupboard. Yes. And um, now looking back, especially after 2020, like the non-immunization thing has been so, um, I'm so glad we made a decision and I trusted Frank on that. In the meantime, I've done more research myself. And, and then just having the access to raw milk, uh, yogurt, fermented foods, uh, organic ingredients, and just straight away eating out of the garden, like the carrots and stuff. Eating the dirt when you're a baby. like Soil, a, soil, soil. Sorry, yeah, eating soil. the soil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's such a standard thing to say, isn't it? Yes. But for, for little kids, like even our grandson now to kind of, uh, play in the mud and the dirt and and eat soil. soil sorry, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's I can just see him getting that balance that he needs to uh, be 
or he is a healthy boy, but to to become that healthy man. Um, yeah. It's so interesting. And um, the thing you wonder about now is so much of this, I don't even know the right phrase because I feel as I'm falling into the narrative. I'd never heard of the phrase related to children before, but they talk about it all the time now, mental health. And I know that's yeah. not the right word to use. Um, I, call, but, I, call it, I call it mental I, I started calling it mental hygiene. Mental hygiene, yes. That's a good way. But you know what I mean? These kids that yeah, we yeah. have are so anxious, hyper. Some of it, a lot of it could is possibly the phones and the internet. Yeah. But also you think the diet. They actually don't look well nourished. Um, yeah, and okay, this is a discussion that needs to be had. So it's not just that we are not getting the minerals that we are supposed to be getting in the right quantity. The other side of the coin is, is that we have introduced into the environment a whole lot of uh, raw oil-based products that disrupt the endocrine system which disrupt the hormone system, which makes people confused. Yes. And, and there's plenty of scientific material around that, like PFAS and microplastics and how that uh, has impacts on the hormone system. But we don't seem to be allowed to talk about that and discuss that anymore. Isn't that extraordinary? Like you get to one level where you say, oh, um, I was more horrified because I thought the internet was so great. And I didn't even, I didn't <laughs> believe, I didn't believe people when they were saying to me, oh, you know, it's being obliterated because I'm not on social media, but I read it if you follow me, that this yeah, is yeah. being, this is being throttled or this is being taken down. And I thought to myself, they'd never do that, right? Yeah. And then yeah. you realize the extent I've, I've, yeah, of the manipulation. I've, I've, yeah. The I've, last... reali I've realized that it, it's been going on for such a long time. And yes. I, couldn't put a, I couldn't put a finger on it. And it kept on growing in power and power and power. And um, when I was, was uh, running around as an advisor, I learned about the FDA and the EMA in in, in in America and they, they, their impact on the rest of Western society. And it, it was a rolling door of people going from corporates to, to, the, to the government to back in the, into the FDA. And they allowed stuff that was scientifically horrendous. Yes. And from that time onwards, I, I, I see politicians talking and over-promising or in other words lying and 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 really it's it's you if you turn on the old media it's full of propaganda there's nothing nothing factual or or science based from my perspective on there anymore whatsoever mm -hmm. it's um we need a, a, a new media and so reality check man was i pleased that that initiative got started it was far too late in my view but bless you 
people for doing it. Oh, you're so um, kind. Well, yeah. isn't it wonderful too to be good. talking about chickens, soil, gardening, producing food, and not all this theatre of clicks, politics, um, car crash, um, something terrible over here. We're, 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 you feel as though you're becoming in a science fiction movie where you're just clicking on, clicking on, clicking on. And I love it when we get on Rally Check Radio and you're talking about basic stuff. You know yes. what I mean? Real yeah. stuff. Yeah. I mean, growing food. And it's not about agreeing on how you should grow food or Rudolf Steiner had, had all the answers, but this discussion and this questioning um, and the common sense of tradition, of how we traditionally did things and how two or three generations on we've thrown it all away and now we're beginning to discover a wisdom that we didn't see. When I say we, I mean our societies yeah. didn't see this this wisdom in the soil, this wisdom in how uh, the people of Honduras for thousands of years potentially have been growing food and you're expected to go there bushy-tailed and bright-eyed from a university in the Netherlands where you've discovered tropical, studied tropical agriculture and teach them how to farm. It's yeah, that, so, it's it's amazingly arrogant, isn't it? Yeah, and <laughs> so here's an example that we we get uh, trained in uh, in in our Western school, and I and we oppose our Western trend of uh, corporate industrialized farming and tell them to go back to composting. So I go to that, which was me. My thesis was about composting. So we went, ended up in Honduras, and I go there and I say, don't, don't buy fertilizer, make compost. And yes. I tell them to make a heap of compost on top of the soil. And then an old man comes out of his shed and comes out of his house, and, and, he, and he tells me, come, walk with me. And he goes to an area, and there was a little bit of a dip in, in the soil, and he said, yeah, that's my compost. That's how you make compost in the tropics, because if you <laughs> Put it on a heap. It's too hot, and you lose everything. Isn't that funny? Isn't it? Funny? Yeah. Uh, look, it's so wonderful talking. I um, wish you all the very best. I want you to stay in touch with us, and if uh, we've got the overview, so if there's a burning topic that you'd love to cover with our audience, please uh, contact us. Um, uh, Heidi, I of uh, Heidi. Um, uh, I actually do, Rodney. Um, we don't need to talk about it today, but what is happening, uh, there's something happening around us, and we would like uh, the bigger New Zealand um, uh, community to be um, more aware. More aware okay, of that well, let's do that again. Do some Let connecting. Drop us an email and we'll do that. Uh, I just love what you've done. I... I um, think you're amazing and i have learned a lot which is the best cool. sort of radio you can have you're on reality yeah. check radio it's real talk with rodney hyde i've been talking oh how do they do this to me isn't it amazing um it's 
Yoshi, I think I did it. Nearing. Yes, it is. Yoshi. And Frank yes. Van Stencil. Imagine this. They studied away in, I think Frank has always been a contrarian, but they studied away in the in the Netherlands, went out to Honduras and realized that we were doing agriculture wrong and teaching it wrong. And rather than just get involved telling everyone how to do it theoretically, they came to New Zealand and put it into practice and made, took dirt and made soil. And with that soil grew healthy plants and with the healthy plants grew healthy animals. And with those healthy plants and healthy animals, they grew healthy children. And it almost sends a goosebump down your yes. body when you think of it. So anyway. we've had a lovely time. If you want to look them up, you can go to the Wire Wrapper Eco Farm on the internet and you can learn more about the farm, more about what they do, and um, see the pictures because there's some remarkable pictures there. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's been, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. We get, we're truly blessed with the guests we get. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, my goodness, it's Tane Webster, Politics Explained. <laughs> How do you explain this to someone, what is going on in New Zealand? Do you know, Tane, voting started on the 2nd of October. You know, they let you vote early so you can speed things up. We had election day on the 14th of October a month ago. Still haven't got a government. Yeah, we're in our we're in our second uh, season already. It's the negotiation season now. <laughs> well, I think it's a shocking look for the government, the new government, and it's rather poor for the for the country. I mean, I we can make jokes about it in the sense that, you know, there's no government, so no damage is being done. There's no politician trying to do stuff. But it does look banana republicness, and you wouldn't mind if you had a sense that they were in there negotiating the next three years and how they're going to get New Zealand into shape. But what we're learning is they can't even agree where they're meeting. You know, that that they, they they they're putting on a brave face, but we had the spectacle this week of Mr. Luxon and Mr. Seymour flying to Wellington expecting to meet Mr. Peters, his own caucus flying down there, and there was some miscommunication, and then they whipped around and flew back to Auckland. Now a month after the election they're still struggling to meet up. That's not great communication. That's not like dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Um, something's not right in the process. 
Yeah, although I did see that, who was it? Shane Jones showing some support for uh, Act's proposed treaty referendum. That was in the news. I mean, that's that's a positive sign of some... Well, it's a positive sign, but it's Shane Jones, not the leader, and it's not David Seymour. Um, and David Seymour expressed his frustration this week um, and again, I didn't think that was wise, speaking publicly about being frustrated with one member of yeah. the team. I mean, this is a government that has to make quick decisions and quick judgments as they go through the next three years and have to build a very good relation, working relationship. And it would seem that they haven't been able to do that uh, thus far. Um it's very difficult because it's a three-way thing, you know, where um, Mr. Luxon requires both for everything. And it's going to be not just negotiating with New Zealand first and then negotiation, negotiating with ACT. It's going to be ACT saying, well, you show me yours and I'll show you ours, if you know what I mean. It's, it's so difficult. And clearly, um, it's not working because you'd sit down, you'd lock yourself in a room, and for the sake of the country, you would work until you had it done. Decent people would have had it all pretty much done before the specials were counted mm. and then said, look, if the specials come in and we need you, Mr. Peters, we'll come over the top and work it again. It seems to me they sat on their hands until specials were in. And then again, once the specials were in, you'd go into a room, you'd close the door, and we'd say, we've got to get this done, fellas. Ladies and gentlemen, it's do it time. And if it's going to take three days, that's a lot. We'll take three days. But you can't be fluffing around flying back between Auckland and Wellington um, when you've had an election and people are expecting change. They're expecting something. Now, I'm not pointing the finger at anyone. Uh, I just uh, pointing the finger that this is a very difficult coalition to manage. Um, mm -hmm. I don't envy Mr. Luxon at all because um, he's got a tough job with these two parties. So I think it's off to a very poor start. I think they've fallen behind. Um, you know, you get the excitement of a change of government, particularly us who so desperately wanted it, and then a nothing. Well, but, then you know, Chris Hopkins gets re-sworn in. What is it? Yeah, yeah, and uh, stand-in ministers are off to APEC. I mean, it used to be that you'd have an election and there'd be 100 days of excitement. Well, we've had 30 days of nothing. Literally, a third of that 100 days is gone and we haven't even been sworn in. But more disturbing still are the media. Oh, my goodness. Look, how you put up with these people as a politician these days. In, in Stuff magazine yesterday, they had, oh, we had an 18-second stand-up media scrum with Mr. Luxon as he was rushing through the airport. 
and they got to ask questions in 18 seconds of Mr. Luxon. Now, think about all the questions you'd ask. You got a you got a soundbite. You're wanting a soundbite. Wouldn't you say something like, "Have you made good progress?" or "What progress have you made?" Is there anything you can tell us? Um, have you got a date? Um, are you confident you'll be prime minister? You know, these are these are these are reasonable questions. <laughs> I want to read you the first question. This is Tover O'Brien talking yesterday. Question one came from News Hub's Amelia Wade. So this is old TV3. Quote, did you overestimate your negotiating skills? So the question is a total put down yeah. of the prime minister-elect. And there's no proper answer to it other than to brush it aside. But what self-respecting journalist would ask that? Oh, and he, you know, he says we've we've had a then stuff had a question. Now wait for it. This is from stuff, you know, our highly experienced and qualified. Just to, to clarify for listeners, the thing with that first question is that that people need to understand is no matter how yes or no, you're screwed either way. So that's that's a loaded question designed it's a to loaded, it's a loaded question putting you offside and they're just trying to trick you into a stupid comment. Stuff says this. Has the to Mr. Luxon, the Prime Minister elect, has the coalition deal been a victim of your inexperience? Again, it's a total put down. It's like these smart, clever journalists, oh, they would have had it all sewn up. And like, how do they expect a person to answer that other than angrily or to brush it off? Um, and then finally, there's a question from News Hub again. This is the third question Is this starting to get embarrassing for you? Now, did we ever see questions like that put to Jacinda Ardern? Yeah, never nah. ever. So, poor Mr. Luxon has got the media asking these asinine questions sort of of the nature of have you stopped beating your wife yet and then reporting on how hopeless he is by virtue of the questions that they ask he's struggling with these two um coalition partners to get a deal together and meanwhile the country is because of years of neglect and an accelerated decline under Jacinda Ardern we're falling off an economic, social, and cultural cliff as we become more divided and our economic outlook worsens. It feels like it's a weird, they're, they're creating the same media dynamic that exists in America where it's like the, the right wing or the center right, the media is their enemy. Yes. Media is your enemy. And so they're, they're, it's like the same thing happening here now. Yes. And um, they are framing, they're not trying to elicit news and report it. They're not trying to find out what's happening. Um, they're running a, um, I mean, they're the questions that even an opposition wouldn't put at this stage of the election cycle. Because even an opposition will say, look, it looks bad if you launch into them day one. <laughs> I always used to, and I was wrong. 
because it does look bad because everyone wants to give a new government a fair go. It's the Kiwi way, right? Mm -hmm. So the opposition actually go away and be quiet for six months and work on how they can do better because they're in opposition. They don't start day one all guns firing because it looks... It looks petty. It looks petty and it's not a fair go. And look, they won the election, rightly or wrongly. There was an election held and they won it. And we all wish them the very best, right? That's what democracy is all about. So the opposition, no, Chris Hipkins is not getting launched and is not launching into them. The jolly media are. Oh, did you overestimate your negotiating skills? Can you imagine how insulting that is as a question to anyone? Even if it's true, you don't ask it in that way. You say, look, is it tougher than you thought? What are the sticking points? Why is it taking so long? Just also, isn't, isn't a weird consideration here, excuse me if I'm wrong, but he could make their lives uh, difficult. How? Well, it's, it's, I'm not sure, just over the next three years, I'm sure there's there's ways. I, I bet he would like to, but unfortunately, while we dismiss the news as legacy media and being partisan, it still influences us because yeah. we still flick over the headlines yeah. and we form a picture. We've formed a picture of what's happening in these coalition uh, 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 deals entirely by the headlines well not just that we know other things but yeah it's it's well, a bit I of a big... you know look I, I i truly don't i have no insight no. so my i i can speak for myself i'm driven entirely by the headlines even though i know <laughs> they're framing it and making a negative point and so I can imagine um, you could write it if you were if you were a national party um, fan boy, you'd be writing up saying, "Oh, this just shows you how you know how well thought out they're doing the uh, they're doing the deal. They're getting all their T's crossed and their eyes dotted, you know." But it, it's being framed negatively, and again, this is Mister Luxon's problem because he's allowed the media to seize the initiative. By not getting this deal no fault of his own probably but because he hasn't got the deal they are filling the vacuum and they're making him look weak and inexperienced if he had cracked the deal within a week and said here's what we're doing for the next 100 days they would be scrabbling to catch up so that's how he would make their life hell by doing actually a good job. Well, then they'd probably say, oh, look what you've conceded by negotiating, no, not negotiating hard enough or something. Yeah, but there's a funny thing, right? Because what happens in politics is nothing beats movement. Nothing beats actually announcing things. Nothing beats doing stuff. Um, because when you're doing stuff, you're honor bound to be reporting it. And it's the doing of stuff that people then talk about. Do you follow me? So, no. look, you could be um, – th there's nothing worse than not doing stuff and letting the discussion about politics be formed by your opposition or by the media. So he has to say, these are the 10 things that we've agreed to in our coalition agreement, and these are the things that we're going to be doing over the next 100 days to implement them.
Now, if that happened, that's what you and I would be talking about. We'd be debating them, we'd be discussing them, we'd be trying to decide whether they were good good or not. That's what Mr. Luxon needs to be doing. Unfortunately, nothing is happening. And I think he should concede a lot. I actually think that he has to bend over backwards. Why? Because he's got to seize the initiative and make a virtue of it. And his yeah. supporters and those who voted with him will say, well, look, um, he's prime minister, he's made the call, he's got these people on side. And that means giving enormous power to New Zealand First into the ACT Party. He needs to do that because he needs to get momentum and he hasn't got options otherwise. If he doesn't get momentum, he stalled before he starts. And it's that old story about um, getting on with it is better than um, talking about it. That uh, uh, Georgie Patton's great line, you know, a plan implemented violently, to half thought through plan uh, yeah, implemented yeah. violently immediately is far better than a well thought through one. They're overthinking it. They need to get going. And look, Winston Peters and David Seymour, their party's got a significant chunk of the vote and National needs them. And they campaigned on some strong issues, whether you agree with them or not. Um, National needs to say, okay, that's it, we're in, and get on with it. Because once they've done the agreement, Chris Luxon's in charge. He's the prime minister. At the moment, he's not in charge, and he's being led around the paddock by the nose, in my humble view. And I have the utmost respect for him because he's the prime minister, and I wish him every success, and I wish him every bit of luck. And, and he's clearly got some skill, just like Jacinda Ardern did and Helen Clark did and John Key did. Why? Because they're prime minister. You know, yeah. you don't get to be prime minister without having a talent and a skill. So let's get on with it for the sake of the country. Yeah. That's my humble view. Please, Mr. Luxon, if you tuned in because you've got nothing else to do to RCR, <laughs> get on with it. You know, because you're going to be busy for the next three years. The other thing, Tani, is how quickly for a government the three years passes. You know, to 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 turn a department around, to turn the country around, to um, change course. Oh my goodness! Just to get a piece of legislation through. You know, it takes months and months and months um, mm -hmm. to go through the process. Well, that's something we've talked about on the other episodes about how yes. there's this permanent so they, state of the, the departments yes. and everything. They've got to get changed as well. Yes. So, and they've got to be told before Christmas what's happening for the next three years, so they can spend January figuring out how they're going to do it. Um, and then hit the deck running in you know late January, early February, and then things get moving. It would be a wonderful feeling if we had that. Even sometimes even going in the wrong direction is a good thing. You know what I mean? I know that sounds perverse, but, but at actually, least you're moving. Yeah, right. and you can correct. You can correct the course, you know. But this doing nothing is um erodes a lot of confidence. We don't know. No, you you're in business now. And you're thinking, oh, over Christmas, I'll need to be making decisions about whether I invest in New Zealand or not. Well, you've got no sense of it. No sense at all what's going to happen. And so you hold off because you don't have that confidence. It's very, very important before Christmas 
to give a sense of direction and purpose for business confidence to invest in New Zealand because that means jobs and growth. Mm. And if they don't have that confidence, they won't invest. They don't have. No one has to invest in New Zealand. No one has to invest in a business in New Zealand. Uh, we want them to, but that means actually having a confidence in a direction and the shape of this government. That's not an evidence. Um, and don't forget, it could all fall apart. We could have another election, you know, because they can't get agreement. And so how can you invest under those conditions? Again, mm. We need a government. We need it fast. There you have it. Our Tane Webster and I, our politics explained. Remember, you might disagree. Well, it's politics, so everyone can have an opinion. And I have no special insight. So please send us a text at 2057. Email us at inbox at radicheck.radio. Tane, I wonder if we'll be talking about the same thing next week. <laughs> I kid you not. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, I kid you not, right? You want to you make a prediction? Know? You want to make a prediction? No? Yes. yes. That okay. we will still be talking about it? Yes. All right. Okay, there we go. I'll eat humble pie next week. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at radleycheck.radio. I do love getting your messages, and I do love reading them out, and I read them all out, uh, unless they're too long or unless they get asked not to be read out. Some people just like to send me a private message. One of the things clearly that's being tightly discussed between ACT, New Zealand First and National, is ACT's call for a referendum on what the principles of the treaty should be. And it's getting canned as an idea by, oh, all the important people. So most importantly, Jim Bolger, Prime Minister for the National Party, and Helen Clark, Prime Minister for the Labour Party. And there's poor old Jim Bolger saying it's bloody stupid, a total sideshow, a no-go, and really divisive. Not just divisive, really divisive. He says, quote, trying to rewrite and reinterpret the intentions of a document that was signed formally, legally, correctly, 160, 170 years ago. It is simply unwise, to put it gently, says Mr. Bolger. Well, funny enough, the referendum, and I'm not here to defend it, but the referendum isn't about the treaty as signed. It's about what's happened since the so-called principles that Mr. Bolger was so involved in letting loose 
on New Zealand. The treaty's fine. It's the principles that have been ascribed to it that, that, that is difficult. Helen Clark says it would be incredibly divisive. Quote, it would rip us down the middle of the society. So I don't think New Zealand should go near that. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We are divided over this, clearly. And isn't that when we should have a referendum to settle it, to get a result, to let the people have their say, to let democracy work? Or are we going to have the Jim Bolgers and the Helen Clarks and the Chris Finlaysons and the John Tamahiris and the Willie Jackson say, no, 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 no. We can't have a vote on this because it would be divisive. Our view has to win and not be voted upon. Because that's what they're saying. They're saying this is our view. Our view is in force. And to discuss or debate or to vote on our view would be divisive. Well, I think the way to handle a divisive issue in a society is to have it out in the open, is to have a proper debate, is not to shut it down, thinking, hoping it would go away, but to talk about it, to argue it, to fight over it, using words, not violence, to protest, to have rallies, to call people to account for why they think what they think. I'd love to have Helen Clark and Jim Bolger and Chris Finlayson and Willie Jackson and everyone else who's all full in favour of the principles of the treaty, A, tell us what the principles are, and B, where they came from, and C, why it's good for society to be following them when actually those principles do divide us down the middle between Maori and non-Maori. I would like to have that debate and hear those arguments. And that's why I'm now coming around to the view that a referendum would be a jolly good idea because we can have the argument. One side's willing to have it, the other side's not. I think that tells you everything that you need to know about this issue. And that's why I'm coming down fully in favour of having a referendum on these principles, and let's settle it once and for all. Referendum's not perfect, but it's what we do in a democracy. We don't take a bunch of people, declare them deplorable, and say their views don't count. No, we have a debate, we have a vote, and we settle it openly and democratically. And so, I say to Helen Clark, I say to Jim Bolger, let's try democracy for a change, rather than the surreptitious changes that you've implemented on us. We'd quite like to vote for it. So yes, we would like our referendum. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Radley Check Radio. Send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at radleycheck.radio. Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Oh, you're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. i got my mailbag here, but... My mailbag doesn't runneth over. It's a bit small. So please remember, you can send me a text 2057. Email me inbox at radio. It's my payment, hearing from you, getting your messages. Uh, general feedback. The original was a mono alert. This is for the jab. 
Uh, they could be using two terms for the same item. Could be. Awesome, amazing summary, Rodney. So grateful for your reflection on politics. Thank you. Rodney, awesome as you listened and learned. I've seen you develop over the last few months and as exemplary podcaster, now my favourite. Oh, so kind. I hope you find my fight for truth and sovereignty for New Zealand interesting and compelling enough to make comment on your show. As usual, like a lot of your guests seeking the truth, I have been gaslighted and treated as a suck it up, sonny. Nothing to see here from Mark. Well, Mark, send me your stuff. Send me a link. Morning. Can you please pick up, Rodney? Cheers, Gavin. Oh, do you know my kids come into my room and they knock my microphone away sometimes? I hope it's okay now. Good song. Had to shazam it. Found it after a wait. I hope to hear it on Radio Paradise. Cheers, Geza. Let me have some comments on the lovely Kathy Jameson. Oh, bravo, Kathy and Rodney. I'm mind-boggled at your information. This is simply corrupt. This is outrageous. This is state-mandated medical manslaughter. I'm shocked at the depths of death and damage covered up by our government. Mind-blown. It is getting like that, isn't it? Because it's now not just a suspicion. It's not just a statistical anomaly needing explanation. It's now become very serious, very, very serious indeed, and they continue here in New Zealand to deny it. Elsewhere, the truth is seeping out into the mainstream. Rodney, they, what should be stopping the jab here in New Zealand is the fact that Pfizer's SDU safety data sheet state, quote, no available data, hollow. You aren't allowed to buy or sell products in New Zealand without a complete and accurate SDU safety data sheet. So who's paying Pfizer jab okay? Who's saying Jai's, sorry, who is saying Pfizer's jab is okay? Cheers and God bless, Carl. Thank you, Carl. Please explain this. Jabby changing the Coroner's Act in the middle of the night, the law regarding telling the dead was altered and more massively. Please explain what happened there. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know that. If anyone's got uh, any information about uh, changing the Coroner's Act, I'd love to see it. Um, email me, inbox rallycheck.radio, text me, 2057. And so now not only do the politicians have blood on their hands, the media and the medical establishment, but our own public service threw New Zealand under the bus and hid the data. This ended in much death, let alone damage. We have been utterly corrupted. That's manslaughter. Thank you, Kathy. This is extraordinary information. It is, isn't it? It's almost too big for your head to handle. That's how I feel. It's so deeply shocking and disturbing, you sort of want to run away. And that's why you love, just love what Kathy Jameson does and others looking after the vaccine injured, Linda Wharton especially, oh my goodness, how she keeps going. Wonderful, wonderful people. Hi, Rodney, you're dead wrong calling this incompetence. This is obfuscation and a cover-up, and the real problem is they're doubling down. You would have thought by now they would have said, sorry, we screwed up. But no, they've got their foot hard on the accelerator. One can only hope Winston Peters has a few bottom lines, and this is one of those, a full investigation regards Jan. Yes, there's that great Macbeth line, isn't it? They're so steeped in blood. They have to keep going, wading through the blood, because to go back is to go back through all that blood. It's a wonderful line. Is it Macbeth or Hamlet? Macbeth. 
Hi there, this is for Rodney. I was listening to him just now and think he'll find this interesting. Please tell him to watch all the videos in this link. link. Keep up the awesome work, Deborah. This is Israeli Khalif Killingfields, it's called, on globalresearch.ca. I looked at the link, and it's about how Israel is committing... I struggled to say it, genocide. I don't see that. I looked at the link. I haven't looked at the videos yet, but they are rooting out Hamas. And no doubt there are sadly some civilians getting caught up in it. But I don't see the genocide from the Israelis. It seems to me the Israelis want a little boundary around their country and to be left alone. They're not expansionist. Whereas the other side want to gobble Israel up. And I guess that's the question. Does Israel have a right to exist? And I, my answer is yes. There you have it. That's my mailbag. Text me, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Thank you so much for being here. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for being along. Uh, so lovely to have your company. Uh, we had a great show. We talked to Neville Munro about the Scott Watson trial, troubling as it is, disturbing as it is. Can it go wrong? Yes, of course it can. Uh, did it go wrong in this case? I think so. I don't know what you think. Um, I have grave concerns. Grave, grave concerns. How do you fix it? Well, we've all tried. And then we had soil and soul living with Frank and Jose. Uh, how wonderful is that? That idea of how rich a thing the soil is. And it's so easy just to see it as a substrate, as an inert thing. But it should be living. It should be alive. It should be its own interweb of microorganisms and macroscopic fauna and flora. And wonderful to give us nutrition and glorious food and glorious animals and glorious people. Thank you for being along. Looking forward to next week. Remember, send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at radleycheck.radio. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. 